Russ, my life is completely different now. Everything has changed. Do you get a new uh, lady in your life, Mike? No, even, well, I don't know about better, but uh, better for my back. I've got a new chair. Oh. And I'm really psyched about this. It's really comfortable. It's solid. And I think my whole back has changed and after just three days of sitting in this thing. I feel good. You look rejuvenated. It doesn't, it doesn't squeak like the old chair did. I remember like in the early episodes, we had a lot of squeaks on the chair. And uh, that won't be happening anymore. Well, it hasn't happened in a while, but I can lean wow, back and it that. feels good. Woo. I wish we were on video so everybody could see this and see how straight I'm sitting up now. I think this is going to make massive improvements, uh, not yeah, only for I, I the think, podcast, but for all of your uh, life. I feel like it's, you know, I mean, if it's straightened out my back, it must have straightened out my brain too, right? So I think we're going to, I'm going to. Your yeah, chakras will be aligned. Yeah, my chakras are all aligned and I'm just going to be saying all these um, uh, useful, helpful things about music. So huh. <laughs> this is the first, the first episode that's gonna what do they say the you know today today's the first day of the rest of your life right this is the first episode of the rest of our podcasts now i'm suffering from chair envy yeah yeah and you know what this is a funny thing i got this chair it's an ikea chair and it cost about in american dollars it would be it was like what 13 around thirteen thousand yen so it's like around 110 bucks 110 110 120 bucks right and i know people who have like Chairs that cost three thousand, four thousand dollars, you know, and uh, it, it, it seems crazy to me. This chair is like ideal. It's for three thousand dollars. It ought to come with all these kind of fingers that uh, massage your neck and your lumbar region and stuff. You would you think, know? right? You what are you going to so. do? This is a perfect chair. Why do people have three thousand dollar chairs? I don't know. I've we'll sat in how... a three thousand dollar chair before. It really didn't seem all that special to me. Let's see how long it lasts. Well, there's that too. I think this chair less IKEA stuff tends to be really good, though. It tends to hold up. You just got to build it so. yourself, no problem. So, so I get to build it myself, and I get to feel like a man for a while, and then that that feeling quickly goes away when it's finished. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's keep feeling manly tonight here on yeah. Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. I'm Russ over here, and that's Mike in his new chair. This is Mike in my new chair. Feeling good. All right. And this is yeah. episode 54, and we've got a special edition this week, a themed edition. It's all piano. All piano. This is, a, this is um, not only is it all piano, but it's sort of, um, it's wide-ranging piano, isn't it? Because so. we wound up, I mean, I didn't really know what I was in for, even with the the uh, recordings I chose, and um, it was quite an adventure, and I think it'll be an adventure for you, listener, as well, if you actually yeah. listen to the uh, the recordings that we put up. Yeah, and I think this is quite an experience. There's a range of uh, established and well-known musicians, and there's also some I'm sure most uh, listeners won't have heard of before. Actually, we've got a debut recording in here, too, so... It's uh, kind of wide-ranging in experience yeah. of the uh, artists and, uh, and, and international. Where they're from. Yeah, where yeah, they're from. International too. and stylistically. So, look, I'm moving around in this chair and you can kind of hear it creaking now. I don't know what's going on Stop here. Stop that. Oh, man. Yeah, I know. Stop, I know. Stop playing with your chair in the podcast. I know. I'm just too excited about it. I don't know. Anyway, before we get underway here uh, in this episode, I want to remind the listeners again in the episode description 
You'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music for almost all of the music we'll discuss. The first uh, recording this evening is Hyperion, and we've done a lot of their releases, and they're not available on streaming yet, unfortunately. But I'll put the Hyperion link so you can hear samples uh, in yeah, the description. Yeah, samples in this. Uh, also, at the top of the description, there's a link for all of the music that's available on streaming in one place on Deezer, our preferred streaming platform, where you can also follow the podcast. Uh, just look us up, Adult Music Podcast, under playlists or podcasts. You'll find the uh, episode playlists for all of the episodes there. And uh, if you don't see the full description on your list uh, or, or list on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, come over to our host site, Podbean, where all the links are easy to find and follow. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you listen to us on. If you take just a moment, uh, also give us a ranking or write a short review that helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, and that helps us get new listeners, uh, which we're always grateful for. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook now. Uh, look for us there. Just search for Adult Music. You'll find our new page. We're kind of just building it up. So if you want to jump on and follow us there, we'd appreciate that. You can also leave a message or comment. And if you'd like to contact us directly with anything uh, in a message format, comments or questions, we'd like to hear from you. Our email address is Adult Music Podcast. That's all one word at gmail.com. Yeah. Well, before we get into the music, uh, we reach the final musical coda section. Uh, this is our section of uh, entitled "Musical Necrology," I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. We so, do. We we trot this out from time to time when we're feeling sad yeah, in the jazz world <laughs> about musical losses. Yeah, uh, we lost uh, the cornetist Ron Miles uh, this yeah. week, uh, who has been getting a lot of attention in recent years for uh, his own releases and collaborations. Uh, we covered uh, one he did with uh, a group he'd worked with out of the Denver scene for uh, many years, the Jazz Worms. Yeah, uh, last year we did the Jazz year. Worms album, their, and, their second uh, album, because they did one when they were all really young. Right. And then one the year before his death, as it turned out. How about yeah. that? Kind of bookended his yeah. career. Too young at only 58 years old. So that's only two years older than me, and I'm hoping to get past that. <laughs> yeah, so, um, also, he had a record. I can't remember what was the name of that album. He there was a there was a track that he did on his. Uh, I think it was his most recent solo album. I don't think he put out a solo album after this, but there was a song called "Queen of the South" that I really liked. It's really pretty. Uh, check mm. that out on your um, streaming service. Just a Ron Miles "Queen of the South." Um, I could figure out what album it's on, but while I'm looking at that, I should also mention in the classical world, we lost um, someone in um, a pioneer of early music, meaning from the Renaissance era. But uh, this is um, Rene Klemenschik. Um, he was a scholar and he was also the director of Musica Antigua. And he died at the age of 94, which is, seems to be a pretty good life there. So That's pretty good. Yeah. Rest, rest in peace, Rene. We won't be, well, you don't know. We might be hearing some more from him. If they've recorded anything. All right. The Ron Miles album is, oh, Rainbow Sign. Okay. That's, it's a good, it's a, it's kind of a challenging record really, but there's a track on it called Queen of the South that I really liked. Um, and so yeah. I'm going to recommend that. I enjoyed his playing. You know, he's not a technical 
showman of the instrument, but uh, he placed his notes really well, and uh, his compositions were interesting too. He played the cornet, and that was that's unusual to me. Um, These days, yeah. I'm really yeah. interested in hearing that it's just a different sound than the yeah. the trumpet that you often hear. We often hear we often hear some really virtuosic uh, trumpet players in jazz. Yeah, you know, so just a different sort of uh, timbre to the instrument. Yeah. You know? Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, sad news, but uh, we thought we'd mention it, and um, yeah. hopefully uh, we won't have uh, too many more uh, in the coming weeks. Yeah. But let's uh, roll into the uh, piano music. We're going to start with uh, familiar material anyway. Uh, yeah, so when you think of the piano, um, if I say classical music, classical piano, like who do you think of right away? There are really two. Chopin. Um, Chopin would probably be the first for many. But of Beethoven. course, yeah, Beethoven, the sonatas, you know, yeah. we think of, you know, everybody has to play the uh, Beethoven sonatas when they're learning the piano and we think of famous works like uh, the moonlight sonata of course right. or the pathetic sonata that would be uh, number eight mm-hmm. um and uh there are 32 beethoven sonatas but piano sonatas and uh, people generally know only those two <laughs> unless they uh listen and um you know sort of uh go on now i i realize i have a lot of um avid classical music listeners who probably know most of the 32 i will say i've certainly heard all 32 of them, but I don't remember all 32 of them. They're just cer- certain ones that stand out. And then there's some of them that were juvenilia that got, got published later and this sort of wound up being part of the canon uh, that are kind of forgettable and I don't really remember them mm. very well, although they're pretty. They're really nice. But um, today we are going for two mighty sonatas from the end of um, Beethoven's career, probably the two mightiest sonatas that he ever wrote. And that would be uh, the Hammerklavier Sonata, the longest work for for solo instrument written up to its time. Uh, the Romantics, who were inspired by Beethoven, took care of that later. They, they wrote even longer works. And um, his final piano sonata, Opus 111, um, which that, that number has become sort of significant just because this work is labeled as Opus 111. The uh, number 32 in C minor Okay. Right. Both difficult works for the pianist and for the listener too. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sort of like All the right. uh, Iron Man of piano sonata. It really is the Iron Man one, of yeah. piano playing, I yeah. think, and uh, also sort of of uh, tonal piano listening. I mean, if you really want to go to the super Iron Man, you get into the uh, mid 20th century and just sort of, yeah. What was it that uh, Charles Ives said about I think, uh, Carl Rogel's music? Like, he's just. It's, you know, take, take, your it, take it like, like a man. man. <laughs> <laughs> take your dissonance like a man. <laughs> oh boy. Anyway, all right. So uh, the Beethoven sonatas. The the other two mighty. We think of Beethoven as being a heroic era composer. So there's um, and the two. You know, we think of the Fifth Symphony, which would be one of the heroic era works. The uh, the Third Symphony, the Eroica, named the heroic which is, I guess, where the era gets its name from. Um, there are the Razumovsky string quartets. And then there are two piano sonatas that belong in that era. That's the Waldstein and the Appassionata. And um, the pianist that we're uh, listening to tonight playing these um, opus, you know, Hammerklavier, um, opus 106, and uh, the C minor, opus 111, is Angela Hewitt, Canadian pianist who I happen to be a big fan of, um, as is a um, friend of the podcast, 
uh, Nathan Jones over in Italy. What's up, Nathan? I know you're a big fan of Angela Hewitt, so we'll give you a shout out there. Now, this is um this release is the last in um, Angela Hewitt's complete um, Beethoven piano sonatas um project. So she's now finished recording all 32 of Beethoven's piano sonatas, and wow. she saved the two. Biggest, most difficult, and most challenging ones for the listener for last, and put them on the same album, which I think is really hard. I I couldn't listen to this like all the way through. It was just so mind cracking to me. You know, I had to I had to listen to one at a time. I broke them up, yeah, as well. Yeah, I broke them up too. I think, and we recommend that you do that too, listener. If you're gonna if you're gonna traverse these. Okay, so speaking of which, Angela Hewitt, I was. This this um I I have all of these um uh as single discs now I'm imagining Hyperion is going to be putting out a complete box pretty soon um, of all of her piano sonatas and I would I would recommend that but I rather like having them as individual items because she's um sort of paired you know sort sort of un- she's put sort of unusual works together and it was it okay. made for some interesting program like she'd do an early one a middle one and a late one or. Or right. something like that, and uh, she, her recording—they've th- th- all been good, but they've all been rather unique, which is which mm. speaks well for the uh, project. I don't think um, the, her entire her complete Beethoven piano sonatas is going to be at the top of the um, uh, yeah. the recommended list, but I think it's well worth hearing. I liked her um, approach to these. Um, you know, I did too. She did a really powerful, sure. like appassionata, way back towards the beginning of the series, and here. She's playing two works that um, are said to be deeply spiritual and also very um, sort of, oh, not heroic, but um, just powerful. And when you hear people play them, uh, they're usually very loud. They're really, um, hmm. the, the hammer clavier especially, uh, it's said to be, um, have been recorded, not recorded, um, composed for a piano that uh, was not yet in existence that had like more sustaining power than the, mm. the, um, pianos of Beethoven's time. And it's a gigantic work. In fact, um, I don't think it could, I, I seem to recall it couldn't be played on the pianos of Beethoven's time because there weren't enough keys on those pianos. So he actually <laughs> wrote for extra keys that weren't yet right. in existence. So he, I think he was imagining a bigger piano. And But by this time, of course, he was deaf, so he didn't play it himself. Um, so it, Franz Liszt later wound up playing this and making it famous. Mm-hmm. I don't know who played it then. I'm pretty sure he didn't, but he, I don't know. I should do more research. Anyway, but I just talk on a podcast. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> which, which, as we mentioned, qualifies me for nothing else anyway you do look um, good in that chair though i have to tell you i do yeah. yeah if only if only we were video too well i thought um what i yeah you know, you, you, i've heard these works before and as you say the heavy image sort of uh stayed in my mind associated with them but i found um she has a rather i don't want to say it's a measured approach because that sounds sort of not yes calculated in fact, i wouldn't call it a measured yeah. approach but yeah. what i would call it, it's a very i uh a sensitive approach in that uh, it gets the right mixture. The the heavy yeah. passages are sufficiently heavy. Other parts yeah. are surprisingly light. And I noticed right away with the first movement of uh, number twenty nine the attention to the dynamic contrast. Yeah. Um, so you never, I never felt that I was getting uh, 
beaten by a Beethoven piano, which sometimes can happen. Which, 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 yeah. which usually happens yeah, with this yeah. piece, you know, because right. they want to put across those like extreme dynamics, you know, yeah. a lot of pianos. But uh, Hewitt doesn't do that. You said sensitive. I'm going to say the F word. Are you ready? I think this approach is very feminine. Okay. And I don't mean that in some kind of like you know, pejorative way or weak way. It's just a different approach than we normally get. It's a mm. little more, as you said, sensitive. Um, it's, it's played more melodically and tunefully than, say, powerfully and, you know, Right. crashing onto these big forte chords. Um, the opening of the Hammerklavier Sonata is pretty famous, the dun, da dun, da dun, 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 okay? But uh, this, it usually explodes out of the piano, but not here. Um, the fortissimi come across more as forte, but I like it like this. I yeah. thought this was a really interesting approach that we just, it was refreshing. Mm. Um, I called I it spirited uh, okay. rather than yeah, heavy. That too. You know, it, it has That would take the measures away. Too, That's good, yeah. 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 Um, she makes sure, okay, she makes sure we hear all the phrases and how they're related, and she goes for a rather subtle reading of this score, you know, without the machismo that's usually applied to it. Um, and this kept me listening. Um, she's, she also shapes all of the melodies and so well and just sort of makes sure that we hear all the cadences, that we follow the sections of this massive work fairly easily. Not an easy task, and, uh, mm. she must have really put a lot of thought into this. Um, the quieter themes, like the second theme in the uh, sonata form, are really lovely, too. Um, she has this way of, when she's approaching cadences toward the end, she has this kind of almost like hiccup. It's like a slight staccato um, that she adds to certain parts of the phrases, which makes them kind of noticeable. And you, you see, I, I just found that these little markings, you know, mm. these sounds kind of made me more aware of where I was. You know, in the movement or in the score or in the whole structure of the piece. Um, the recording is a bit distance from the piano, so you get a lot of room ambience. But the detail is all present. This was a, it was a good recording. I usually don't like it when the piano is recorded like this, but I, I did like this particular uh, album. Um, I don't think it took away from her dynamics at all. I think that she just doesn't play the fortes especially loud. Hmm. Um yeah, I like the overall sound, I think, to this first movement. Um, there are a lot of teasing pauses in the development section in the middle when the themes keep changing and changing keys and, you know, being shortened and chopped up. Um, and uh, she, she'll stop on maximum tension to add to that tension. Um, yeah, this um, and the imitative material, and, and especially in the last movement, the the, the big fugue, um, really benefits from Hewitt's long experience with playing Bach's contrapuntal music. She's especially good at um, bringing out the different voices as, as she plays and keeping a balance mm -hmm. between the two so that you can kind of follow what they're both doing. Um, the beginning of the recapitulation is to, uh, in this first movement is taken in a way that you wonder if it's still in the development. Um, it's easy to get lost in this. Um, there's a lot of added accompaniment to the themes, and the ending chords are also modestly taken. So I kind of didn't feel completely beaten up and exhausted after this long first movement. We get a surprisingly brief, well, it's not surprising if you know the work, but uh, Scherzo, the second movement, is very fast. It's presto. It's very short, and it's total contrast mm -hmm. to the first movement. It's light, and it's a little it's a little cockeyed in its rhythm. Dun, 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 dun. You know, it's kind of like that. Accents are modestly applied. 
Um, not always the case with Beethoven pianists. And an overall sense of musicality comes out of this performance. I really liked it a lot. All right, next we get to the third um, movement, the Adagio Sostenuto. This is the slow movement. Adagio Sostenuto, Appassionato e con molto sentimento. Um, uh, is I've always kind of found it odd how this is a very long movement too. And the mighty first movement and this long meditative third movement are separated by the briefest scherzo. It's just kind of sandwiched in there. You know, like you, you have these mm. two enormous loaves of bread and then this tiny sliver of meat in between. <laughs> she starts well, I think this, this is the meat. Third yeah. one, very softly too. Uh, yeah. It's very, very softly. Yeah, and it's sort of a chorale, which should give you a, you know, it's, it's chords. This mm. is the sort of thing that's sung in church and it should um, put you in the mood of spiritual pursuits when it's in um, instrumental music like this. So we know this is... Uh, just because of that, that this is sort of a, a movement with uh, spirituality or, you know, some mm. sort of um, trans, uh, you know, transcendental quest in mind. Uh, so it has a religious feeling to it. Uh, she plays this, uh, this movement at enough speed to keep the sense of melody or theme holding together. Uh, then rather than have us drift away into the ether with each chord, which also sometimes happens, but not here. This music feels like it's going somewhere. Uh, Angela Hewitt makes sure we're aware of that. I was very interested in the way she approached the syncopated melody in 3-4. Uh, I, I think it's 3-4. I've never played this work. Um, it, it, it's kind of um, – it's, it's sort of like in 2 in, or in 4 in one hand and then there's triplets in the third. It's not in 3-4. I'm sorry. But um, so it's sort of like contrasting rhythms. And some pianists give it a slightly swing feel and it kind of sounds like it's jazz. And that can't be right. This wouldn't this this sort of <laughs> rhythm wouldn't have been available to Beethoven. But Hewitt here avoids that completely, and I was pretty amazed by this. She plays the left hand low bass note followed by the two chords. It is three, sorry, three, four, as a tenuto with a staccato dot. Okay, so it's kinda like the note is held and then it's just kind of lifted off for a slight silence and then the next chord is played. Mm -hmm. So the detached and uh, we don't get that jazz sense from this, the swinging kind of feeling. Uh, it comes across as something more mechanical, like a wind-up music box, which is very appropriate for Beethoven's time. Um, this felt true to the period to me, so I liked that approach. I, yeah, I was really impressed by that. Mm. Um, the themes reappear, reharmonized, recontextualized, developed. The chorale comes back at the end. I've always found this movement a bit hard to follow, but I've come closest to following it here. Uh, Hewitt is an excellent guide. I really liked this a lot, so I'm like, I'm really feel like I'm discovering a lot about this piece that I didn't hear. And I think all of her 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 whole interpretation, all the decisions she's making, are really good ones. Um, the voices are well balanced. The sense of the movement's form is put across well, even though it can seem amorphous, but it does feel like it has a direction and a shape here. I could probably listen to this uh, performance again and again. Finally, we get to the big fourth movement. This one's the one with the big um, uh, fugue in it. And this is really where Hewitt excels. Well, and she's good all through. Um, there's a, one of those tenuto. I don't know what the name of that is. You have the line, which is tenuto, with the staccato dot over it. And I know what it means, but I don't know what that's called. I think it's referred to still as a tenuto. But... Um, um, it has that uh, bass note after the ethereal chords at the opening. The fourth movement starts with these kind of high chords played high in the piano's register. There's a bass note, and then you're kind of like 
it's like you're drifting off into space, you know, free at last of whatever was holding you to the earth, like you're some uh, weather balloon or something, you know, breaking the bonds of uh, gravity. Um, it's the way she plays them here with the tenuto staccato bass note and the ethereal chords. I could identify this recording as her because of these little characteristics that she puts in. So mm. if you didn't tell me who the pianist was, I mean, I would because I know this performance now that I would I would be able to identify right. this, which isn't always the case with other performances. So I'd say it's um pretty unique that way. Mm. Um, the sudden sforzato bass note that starts the fugue material simply interrupts and doesn't land so forcefully that it erases your memory of the previous material. Like, cause it's it's a bit of a shock, and when it comes, usually <laughs> you just forget what you were <laughs> listening to because you're suddenly in the moment hearing this. Um, the the fugue comes; it's very long and very fast. But even at this speed, all the melodies are well balanced, and each is identifiable by the ear at any time. Um, the fugue goes on for most of the movement. Uh, sequence melodies break us out of the first fugue. Then a slower, more stately fugue starts at around the nine-minute mark. That's right, listeners. This is going to go into double digits as well. This whole uh, sonata lasts about 50 minutes, okay? Uh, so it's pretty long. It's a long time for a pianist to be playing a single work without a break. Well, you have the breaks between the movements, but you can't get up, really. Uh, this eventually combines with the first to become a double fugue, or some combination of themes we've heard. I'm pretty sure it's a double fugue. It's quite a display, and the chords at the end are pretty emphatic. I thought this was a really um, interesting sort of alternative um, interpretation of this work, and I really enjoyed listening to it. It was very inviting, and it's very melodic as well. It kind of sacrifices drama for melodicness, for more for musicality and for shape um, would be my... Um, interpretation. Now, if you're looking for drama, there's a bit of drama here. It's built into the piece, but you're probably going to want to go for another pianist if that's what you're looking for. I recommend Richard Good. I like his playing a lot. Recently, Igor Levitt did a pretty fast <laughs> recording of this. <laughs> and uh, our favorite pianist, one of our favorites, uh, jean Flam Bavouzet, played this pretty well, too. So I'd recommend his recording. Yeah, nice all right. light After touch on Beethoven too. Yeah, 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 and he's he's pretty fleet as well. What happened is a lot of um, there's a new Baron Writer edition of all the Beethoven piano sonatas that came out, and a lot of pianists have um, followed that score and sort of you know reinterpreted it the way they play these works because of the new uh, details that have emerged from this new edition. And I'm guessing that Hewitt is uh, looking at that edition as well. All right, well, after a day's break where I had to recover from listening to this 50-minute massive piano sonata, I went for piano sonata number 32 in C minor, opus 111. This was the last sonata that Beethoven ever composed. It was composed from, from 1821 to 1822. Uh, Beethoven died in 1827, and uh, he composed, um, I think, five-string quartets between this and that. So he was done with piano sonatas. And just mm. went on to these string quartets, which are equally massive and sort of hard to break down. <laughs> so <laughs> these are these are really rewarding works. They you sort of learn something new about them every time you hear them, just because they're so complex and deep. And your life experience, sort of, uh, as you get older, I think you kind of pull a lot more out of them as well. 
All right, the piano sonata number 32 is very unusual in that it is two movements. Um, the first movement, labeled Maestoso, and then a dash Allegro con brio ed appassionato, um, starts with the way Hewitt plays this. It comes across as having this in media res quality, which means in, is Latin for in the middle of things. So sort of, I think the... Um, the big example of this would be um, the Iliad, you know, Homer's Iliad, where um, everybody's already at Troy and the battle has been going on for ye nine years already. And then you're, you're sort of in the middle of it. So it's almost like there's been stuff happening. It's like walking into a room and like there's this big argument happening and you don't know how it started, uh -huh. but you just know there's an argument happening. That's sort of the quality I get from the very beginning of this work, um, especially the way she plays it. I n it never occurred to me before. It's just... Um, she um, takes away some of the harshness with her soft, cushiony tone. Um, I this is what I think of as feminine. Like she she goes for for more beauty of tone than any kind of harshness. And there are some harsh moments in this opening of this work. Um, there are harsh chords that come booming out of the piano in other pianists' hands. Uh, she shapes the material, underplaying the dynamics to accentuate the narrative line. Um, we finally arrive at the main theme of this movement, exactly the two-minute mark. Um, before that, there's a series of like um, notes that are kind of occasionally accompanied by this really dissonant-sounding harmony, and they're those harmonies are usually played sforzato, meaning like you're um, hitting the note, the the key really hard to bring to make it like really sound like you're forcing the sound out of the piano. She does. She follows the direction, but she doesn't really, um, you know, make sure you hear that. It's it's more subtle in her hands. Um, so at the two-minute mark, we hear the main theme. Dynamically, again, it's underplayed, and I don't mean that in a negative way. Uh, again, I feel there's not enough contrast between the second half of the theme and its repeat uh, played more quietly. But that's okay. I, I'm really, really willing to let that go for the musicality of this performance. The clarity and speed of the material that follows is really impressive. The second time the main theme is played, we get a staccato legato contrast between the two times the second half is played. So she, she varies the repeat. The development starts after the pause at around six minutes. Again, she takes a pretty long pause here to let us know that the opening material is done and we're going to hear the development next. Then, after only 30 seconds, we're back to the main theme. I think the way this uh, movement seems to be shaped is that we have this recapitulation, but there's all sorts of... Um, I don't know that it's extra material or if it's just re... Well, it's reharmonization, but it just sounds like there, there are elements being added to the, uh, to the material that we heard at the beginning. It sounds like it has developmental material in it, so the development and recapitulation sound like they're going on at the same time. But we do go through all the themes, so it is a recapitulation. There's a coda right after the cadence that ends the opening material. So it's a pretty powerful movement. Now, generally, that's the, the masculine movement, and the second um, movement is the more, uh, generally speaking, feminine one. So there's sort of like that yin-yang, or yang-yin in this case, um, quality uh, to these... Um, to, to this work, okay? So we're kind of... I, I said this would be the more feminine, but I, I, I told you already she's taking a more feminine... She's taking more a feminine approach to this, her interpretation, going for that cushiony sound that I'm really enjoying hearing a lot. 
The second movement is labeled Arietta uh, Adagio. Now, an Arietta is sort of a light aria um, or a song. Um, this sounds more like a canon, not a canon, um, a chorale, sorry, like a, a church work again, to my ears. So a simple song that would be sung in church. And I think uh, that's apt um, because um, this is really a, a set of variations where the note values speed up as the movement goes on while the tempo remains the same. So like you'll get like quarter notes and then you'll get triplets in quarter mm -hmm. notes and then you'll get 16th notes and then 32nd. And it doesn't keep going like that. There are uh, breaks from that. But at the end, we wind up uh, with unmeasured um, sounds like a trill. Okay, so the trill isn't measured as we reach out into the into the ends of the universe and into the divine. Um, I always kind of think of this movement as, <laughs> let me, see, how can I say this? Shedding the earthly weight of the body until pure spirit is all that remains. That's how, how those that? Buddhist retreats you went on have gotten. That's to it, you. man. That's it's <laughs> given me the vocabulary. <laughs> I just wrote talking about these spiritual things. <laughs> the ending is dreamy. It, it, <laughs> it pales in comparison to. Uh, yeah, I'm, your I'm going for something a little heavier, or is it lighter? You know, Both. only only those of us who meditate know for sure. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> dreamy yeah well it is though it's kind of yeah it is going it feels weightless to me uh, I, I, and i guess dreams are kind of weightless they don't really have the uh heaviness of everyday reality to them all right the arietta is gently played very pretty and quite slow and stately in fact which makes me hear it as a chorale uh it sounds more like a hymn to me like chorale okay at about the 250 mark, we hear the melodic line started to speed up with added notes and shortened note values in a dotted triplet rhythm. Um, dun, 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 you know, that kind of thing. It's kind of like a fast Siciliano, I guess. Um, uh, I like the transition into this, which is almost imperceptible. The rhythmic texture simply changes without warning. And the next section begins around the 450 mark and features the same dotted rhythm pattern only with 16th notes. So there's no triplet here. It's it's four sixteenth notes, except that uh, one or two are missing. I think. I I do have the score of this, but it's like in a box somewhere in a closet. I didn't <laughs> I didn't take it out. That would have been a a good thing to do. Uh, the next stage occurs at uh, six minutes and thirty seconds, and we're really moving fast in these dotted rhythms. Now he he keeps to the dotted rhythm. Dun 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 dun, dun, dun you know that kind mm. of thing. Next stage at around 8 minutes and 30 seconds, uh, here the music gets quiet and is mostly played in the lower end of the piano with the bass line driving the ever-increasing note speed. At 9 minutes and 30 seconds, we hear a triplet rhythm in the high end of the piano. So we're getting contrast, the low end, the high end. Hewitt is expressive in this section, and there's a loosening of tension and momentum, probably to set us up for the slowing to come. Next at the 10 minute and 20 second mark, uh, the new material is coming faster as well. Then we get 11 minutes and 20 seconds. So the new themes are kind of speeding up. They're coming faster now. Uh, we're back in the high end of the piano with triplets, and they're played very quietly with a music box quality. Very nice. This was a nice um, interpretive, interpretative choice here. She gets louder as the music starts to go unmeasured with long arpeggios leading to the first trill we hear at about the 12 minute and 45 second mark. This is a 20 minute movement, folks. So <laughs> um, this sets us up for the end of the movement, 
where similar uh, trills will be played in a higher register. So we're getting sort of higher and higher or farther and farther away, higher up into the heavens. The trills climb higher and end in a turn to a very slow rhythm and melody. At 15 minutes and 30 seconds, we get a new rhythmic figure and texture. Momentum is starting to build again. Hewitt seems to play this movement as two large waves of momentum at about this point. I figured that out because there is a slowing in the middle, and then we build again. Think about it as two giant waves at the beach uh, that just kind of come and take you away in a good way. Triplets come back at around 17 minutes and 30 second mark. They're mostly heard in the bass as the right hand plays chords on the beats. The high trills and final approach to the end starts at about the 18 minute and 30 second mark. The trills stop, we get some fragments of melody, and the piece resolves to its quiet, transcendent end. And what a way to end um, one's life of writing for the piano. So I'd say these two performances, they, yeah, I said they sacrifice drama for clarity of form and melodic line. And that, to me, is most welcome. It's a different approach. I really enjoyed this. Nevertheless, even with the lighter touch and um, that um, Hewitt um, applies, <laughs> I still had to break this up into two different listenings. It's just too heavy to hear all the way through. It's kind of an odd choice for a program. But the one that's the wonder of CD and of... Um, listening on the uh on streaming you don't have to hear the whole thing in one go yeah i enjoyed these performances uh i like her attention to detail uh especially on this second movement here the sense of space between notes that she creates is kind of very interesting i, I felt sort of hanging in some spots there also um as i said that dreamy kind of ending rising yeah. up uh it made it worth the journey to the end of the movement uh, yeah so i really liked it um yeah check it out and as i mentioned uh before we got going this one is on hyperion i'll put the link yeah. to their page but you can't hear it on streaming uh so if you like the samples you'll have to buy it for yourself uh, if you want to listen to all of it yeah or you can come to my place and i'll be glad to play it for you yeah go over to mike's place well as he's building his new dream sound system yeah it's it's going slowly because um because we, we're not earning anything from this podcast yet, <laughs> not yet. If we actually had advertisers i might have that sound system already yeah i think hyperion should kick in and fund you because you keep reviewing uh all of their latest releases which you could only do if you purchased them so yeah i i buy the i buy everything though i'm really uh that's that's another reason why we need funding <laughs> to, to support my habit which 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 only enhances my life it's not shortening it in any way yeah anyway okay oh, good beethoven speaking, release check it out yeah this is a great one it, it ends her um her traversal i would also recommend if you like uh angela hewitt to listen to the her interpretation of the appassionata Sonata. The the last movement just is just dynamite. It's a really great performance. Um, what was I going to say hi, hi, about Hyperion? Uh, they are the Hyperion label is really responsible for a lot of my uh, classical music listening. I mean, I started really just by because it turned out that all of my favorite pianists, um, Stephen Huff, Stephen Osborne, Mark Andre Amlan, Angela Hewitt are all signed to Hyperion Records. And it's a great right. label. They seem to... One of the reasons I love these pianists so much is that they often do 
unusual programs. You know, they'll sort of, especially Mark Andre, Stephen Huff and Mark Andre Amlan, will just pull out like composers you've never heard of before and do entire albums dedicated to their music. And um, that was what I was into. I wanted to expand my horizons. I didn't really want my whole classical music listening experience to be Beethoven, Mozart, and Brahms, right? And you know Bach and the, the other the other big names, and um, also on this pod, you might have noticed, listeners, by now, I, I don't want the podcast to be like that either. I kind of want people to think about classical music as a living thing, so I try to put as many living composers on the podcast as possible, and uh, just go back into the past and um, discover some uh, composers that we don't know, like um, Paul Ranitsky, right? Yeah, Ranitsky. so he he'd be a good example of that. Yeah. Who we're going to be hearing more of? Uh, yeah, in very fact, soon. we're going to have a special Ranitsky section, just like our musical necrology section. Yeah. We're going to have a new segment of the podcast past, podcast called Ranitsky Releases. Um, that's spelled uh, with a W R in both words, by the way. That's right. <laughs> and uh, there have been a because there are suddenly a lot of new Ranitsky Ranitsky uh, albums out, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I'd like to. Do you think we could uh, just uh, take credit for that? We, I mean, we don't know if it's us, but we could say it was. Why not? I think we were uh, one of the first to notice that uh, first orchestral works that came out. And uh, Well, that was because of... Well, yeah, you because you pulled that out. You, yeah. you were the one who kind of put that on the program. And then Bernard uh, contacted Daniel, us, Daniel. and we just sort of got into them after a while. Daniel Bernardson, kind of, that's right. Yeah, Daniel and, Bernardson. Uh, oh, sorry. Daniel Bernardson. God, I keep doing uh, that. I'm the worst. He uh, seems to be really excited these days because there's a lot of stuff coming out. So yeah, only uh, a year after, right? Yeah. that we started talking about him, we'll and we'll be talking about soon. all of those. We, we've decided that just because um, he contacted us and we've been really enjoying these recordings, that we're just going to talk about all of them and yeah. let you know about them as they come out. Unless there are like 30 of them a year, then we're, we're going to have to. <laughs> That'd be a different let, podcast. Let go of that section, but by that point, yeah. he won't really need us anymore. All right, now all right. the next uh, recording. Yeah. Speaking of really living composers, gears. Uh, I don't think we've. <laughs> I have never even heard of this uh, label here. I'm sure we haven't done anything on this label before, um, and uh, this is something completely different altogether. Yeah. What is the? This is a Som. No, this one is a Som recordings. Som. We're going to do this yeah. one next. Yeah. yeah. No, they are. Uh, I think they're British based. Um, okay. I've had. I have a few recordings on this label. Yeah. Anyway, this is a recording by Rebecca Omoria called. Um, African pianism. Um, now, when they say African pianism, please, we do not mean African American pianism. We mean African pianism, and that means the whole continent of Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, and also uh, North Africa as well. Okay, so we're gonna, although we get mostly Sub-Saharan Africa here. Now, Omordia herself is, um, she's a Romanian national. Uh, her mom is Romanian and um, her father is Nigerian, so she has Nigerian ancestry on her father's side. And this um, album is um, it, it's works by African composers. Okay, now when we think African, we shouldn't think you know black right away. Although, although you know, Sub-Saharan Africa, they, most of them would be black composers. But we do have one Moroccan composer on this, and we also have a, a white South African composer as well. So it's a real variety. Africa really does have, you know, a bit of diversity as well you know, that we, we don't really think about too often. We're going to get quite a, a um, mix of things here. 
of music. Um, this is uh, this is really a step uh, towards the lighter side after these really heavy Beethoven works mm-hmm. we heard. These works are really they're pretty rhythmic, but there are a lot of European elements in them as well. Um, a, a lot of these composers studied in the West, and then they added African elements to their compositions you know harmony really does it it comes from europe and if you're writing a, har- a piece that's harmonic you're you, you, that ha- that uses harmony you're gonna have a lot of western influence in it you know but th- we do hear a lot of african sort of um rhythms as well which make these really interesting yeah there's okay uh, a lot of uh pentatonic uh kind of folk yeah. uh things and a rhythmic approach but as we go on i was surprised at some of the harmonic influences uh, too. And uh, I didn't know what to expect from this, but I have to say it's an easy listen. It is uh, an easy overall. listen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's an easy listen in that our ears are really attuned to rhythm, right? Because popular music is um, is about rhythm. It's about energy, you know? And, um, you know, and in America too, we have a lot of like... Um, you know, blues influence music, R and B, yeah, hip hop, things rhythms. like that. So we get we, rhythm is just in our ear, just because we grow up hearing it on the radio. Uh, harmony is a little harder for us, but that really is the European element. Once, mm-hmm. but and I think that's what puts a lot of people, uh, you know, as a as a teacher uh, of classical music, you know, of classical music history, I get a lot of comments about, you know, I want to like classical music, but I don't understand it, and that really comes down to I think harmony. They're kind of intimidated by where it's going, you know, right. the all these um things it doesn't really i mean you start by listening basically and then you go from there you got to do it oh by the way you mentioned um pentatonic but um there is one the moroccan composer nabil benab del jalil i hope i said his name right these are gonna be hard names to say um oh his piece uh, he he, he used a lot of arab modes in this one yeah there's some really interesting harmonic changes uh yeah those are really interesting i thought too I'm going to do my best to try to explain what those are like. <laughs> you really need to hear these really to understand it, you know what I'm talking about because these are it's hard to conjure this. You know, with something like the Beethoven, you know, people have heard these works, you know, if especially if you're already a big fan of classical music, so if I kind of explain certain melodies, people will recognize, they'll just remember them, you know, but in this case this is all new to my ear especially. All right, our first work, Ayo Bankole. This guy had a pretty interesting life. He's Nigerian, lived 1935 to 1976. Uh, this is his Egun Variations in G Major. Okay, now, first of all, I don't know how to say any of these names. I'm doing my best, and I hope you'll... Can I buy a vowel, please? <laughs> yeah, can I buy a vowel? Jeez. I think there are plenty of vowels in Actually, these names. Actually, yeah, the first though. one's missing yeah. one, and then the other ones have too many vowels for English yeah. speakers, but... We'll do right. our best yes. to butcher That's them right. as we'll we do, do with we all languages. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and don't worry, we will give as good as we get because uh, once we get to the third recording, which is about uh, oh no, colder northern climes. I don't know. Somehow, <laughs> I don't know where people get pronunciations for these names, but we'll do what we can. Okay, so Bancole was uh the the the. the... <laughs> I don't want to say the most interesting thing about him, but the thing that stands out about his life is that he was murdered along with his wife at the age of 41. Um, and that's all the information I've got about that. I didn't really oh. look into it too much. I hope it but wasn't boy, because he didn't like his music. No, nah, it probably wasn't that. Yeah. But um, he, he, um, he, I think he's, I think it was, a, he has that in common with, 
who was it? It might have been Antonio Stradella, the Italian composer. There was one Italian composer who was murdered because he, he was like in debt and he, um, the, his, uh, his debtors, his creditors finally caught up with him. Uh -huh. <laughs> and he was, he was summarily executed. Anyway, to, to, to our loss because his music was really good. I can't remember who that was though. It was a Baroque era guy though. Anyway, back to Bancole. Uh, his parents were both musical. His father was an organist and choir master at St. Luke's Anglican Church in Jos, Nigeria. J-O-S, Jos, Jos, where, where he was born. Okay. And uh, his mother taught at Queens High School in Osun State. You're seeing all the Western influence here, aren't you? Yeah. Christianity, you know, these... Um, you know, England, these sorts of things. He left behind a lot of music, especially for the piano, and his music fuses European structural models with folk elements from Nigeria. Uh, folk elements, when you hear that, folk music is complicated. We have an idea of what American folk music is, but we really don't know. If, if, you, if A lot of these songs come from different parts of the country, and they all have different, like, local musical traditions, I've heard a lot of things about uh, the music of Appalachia, where people here play something this way, and then the person like three, you know, mm -hmm. you know, in the next town plays it a different way, and you know, and it's, it just becomes sort of um, set. You're from here, so you play it like this sort of things. Well, I've that sort of that, thing happens. Yeah, you, know? um, you know, in one common theme of folk musics around the world, and one of the reasons why they may use this kind of pentatonic or larger interval scales is this music was often uh, performed and heard outside, maybe while in a work environment, and those larger intervals make it easier to hear and participate oh, in, um, and sort of a common theme, um, you know, in different cultures, those sort of larger steps uh, in the melodies than you would have, you know, in, you know, seconds or, you know, a chromatic mm -hmm. type of thing. Uh, these kind of pentatonic intervals feature a lot in, um, you know, music that... Well, not, popular music too, yeah, yeah. Popular music, but with folk music is a participatory music, right, that right. people shared and used in their everyday life. And uh, those melodies could travel over outdoor spaces and be easily... Uh, participated in by people. Yeah, and they also make for really um, instantly memorable mm. themes and melodies. Um, and these are uh, work songs uh, in this piece here yeah. too, right? Or in coming up also as well. So I think uh, not in Bancoles, but the, the next one uh, too. So uh, we get these kind of, I think folk music sometimes accompanies an activity or a situation too. So that element is there as well. It's not necessarily music that, you know, is performed on a stage, but the environment uh, has an influence on the way it sounds. Yeah, it turns out that there are also 200 ethnic groups, 200 ethnic groups in Nigeria, and each has its own language, culture, and music. So uh, folk elements is wow. a pretty complicated matter in Nigeria. This would take some serious research to be able to figure out, even if you happen to be African, I would think, because mm. I think you'd know the music from your culture, you know, and not necessarily the one mm. you know, in the neighboring town or however these work. 
Okay, the Egon Variations is based on an Egon song called Tona Noe. And this starts with a nice set of chords and a rocking triplet motion. That sort of rocking motion, like back and forth, is, is really a characteristic of African music in general. You hear this a lot on this album, and it's really pleasing. There's something really freeing about it. Um, it's, it's a pretty piece with some nice harmonization by Bancolet. Um, straightforward with a repetitive set of chords and a simple melody, being a folk you know, oriented uh, piece. Um, Bancole then gives us his first variation. It's a bit more involved, and the variations start coming fast and furious after that and get a bit fleeter. Um, Bancole is pretty inventive in his variations, especially I liked his uh, pencil line variation that we hear in the fourth minute, and then he contrasts that with a full-sounding forte variation following, and then a fleet sketch of the theme follows. Uh... The very last bit of the theme repeats with its rocking rhythm, rocking back and forth rhythm. Uh, it's a surprising fortissimo rhythm played in the upper range of the piano. The piece has a sense of closure through a bass note, but the harmony is left open-ended on the chord, which I thought was interesting. So it's kind of, it has a sense of closure, but it doesn't, mm. sort of both at the same time. It's a nice touch. Amuria has a nice piano tone here and a good feel for this music. I often wonder if, say another musician without the Nigerian roots had played this, whether they'd be as natural in this. I mean, you'd have to, I think you'd have to really be there and hear like mm. the, the local music to really be able to put this across. Um, it shows in her phrasing and a yearning sense comes through. I always get this sort of yearning sense from African folk music as well. Something about that sunshine. Next, we have... Um, 12 pedagogical pieces, four of, well, we hear uh, four of them, of the 12 pedagogical pieces by Yosef Hanson Kwabena Nketia. He's Ghanaian, and he lived uh, 1921 to 2019. So he was 98 years old wow. or 97 when he died. So he lived a long life. Uh, this piece is called African Pianism, 12 pedagogical pieces, and we're going to hear four of them. Um, I don't know which ones in the list they are. This guy... Um, Kwabena and Ketia studied um, aesthetics in, and music in London and the U.S. during 1944 to 1955. Uh, well, boy, what a time to go to London, though the war was still on. Mm. And, uh, he says these pieces, that the music is derived from the procedures of African percussion music as exemplified in bell patterns, drumming, xylophone, and mbira music, which is the thumb piano. Right. He wanted to give African piano students something with African rhythmic and tonal flavor to enrich their experience, shape their orientation, and their sense of timing and coordination of rhythmic and tonal events. To be the honest, these to me, I mean, you can hear these um, these elements, but um, the harmony is really what drives these pieces. I feel like um, the first piece that we hear is called "Playtime," is highly melodic and appealing. Simple in its harmony. Uh, it sounds like a fun piece for the students. Uh, it's very musical, unlike many pedagogical pieces. And it reminds me a bit of the approach that Bartok used in Microcosmos. Easy, easy to difficult. And I'm getting a sense of that here. This would be, I guess, one of the easier ones, although, of the of the 12. Um, the, third, the, the second one we hear is called Dagarti Work Song. Russ, you had mentioned the work songs mm. earlier. Here's one of them. This one has a folk-like melody with a middle section featuring a hammered-out rhythm in the treble. 
which morphs into a quicker folk-like melody. Uh, this ends almost as though it were a mid-sentence with no resolve. It just stops being played. Next we get Builsa work song. This one has a tricky rhythm and sounds more like an odd dance than a song, though it has melodic elements and it's pretty short at just over a minute. Sounds hard to play though. Uh, Volta Fantasy, this one works via rhythmic and melodic fragments that gradually build into longer fragments, and the rhythm gets pretty involved at times. They're all they're all short and pleasing, more for the pianist than the listener, though they they are enjoyable to listen to. Um I, no, not more pleasing for the pianist. It's more difficult to the for the pianist. Um, yeah, the the last one kind of has a call and response type of thing going in the melody. I yeah, um, but those uh, gets really percussive in some yeah. of the sections of it. Yeah, I think the, I think the pianist gets more out of these than the listener does. To be honest, they are pedagogic pieces, but this particular mm. one I feel like is more for the training of the pianist. Right. You know. All right, next, uh, track six to eight, Christian Onyeji, who is Nigerian, born in 1967, so he's a contemporary composer. This is called Ufie, and it's an Igbo dance. Um, Onyeji refers to this piece as a drumistic piano work. I like that word, drumistic. drumistic. Hmm. Yeah. Again, puts me in mind of uh, 20th century piano music, which was very percussive. I mean, the piano is a percussive instrument, but it was that was always disguised, especially by the Romantics. Mm. Um, once it became like a hammered instrument, and finally in the 20th century, composers like Bela Bartok started to bring out its kind of percussive qualities. Um, this um, piece seeks to tra- realize and transfer Nigerian drumming techniques to the piano, and it draws from the music of the Anambra part of Igbo Island of Eastern Nigeria. And this music is reserved, this is pretty interesting, it's reserved for titled men who have achieved respectable status in society. Oh. And is often performed, not the piece, but the what the music he drew on. Right. Okay. It is often performed for title celebrations or for other special achievements of important men. Now, the tonal resources, the ton- tonality... Um, not the music, I guess. Um, the, the tonal stuff uh, is derived from the music of the funeral rites of female members of high achievement in the Ngwa part of Igbo land. Ukom. All right. The first uh, movement of this is moderately fast, and we get a rhythmic figure right away. There are a lot of rapid, repeated notes in the thematic shape, so the drumming, I would guess. There's a kind of melodic figure that keeps repeating, but the changing rhythmic patterns are what carry the piece and give it its interest. Um, There's some very appealing melodic moments that appear out of the texture and just as quickly disappear back into it. An element, again, that I really like about African music that'll often happen. Uh, There are contrasting slow sections which still have compelling rhythmic patterns with melodies built into them. Um, This piece almost works like a rondo where the opening theme just keeps coming back. Um, Mm. It's not a rondo, though, but it kind of, you could think of it sort of that way. It'll help to know what to expect. Second movement is slow, and it has slow cascading figures with a droning, repeating bass note. This eventually turns to a short chord pattern with ripples in the tenor. And I'm going to use that word ripples a lot. These little, these kind of quick sort of um, uh, runs on the, you know, of uh, adjacent notes. The rhythm keeps changing in an appealing way. It sounds like this would be tricky to play despite the slow speed. You'd have to really be alert to the changing rhythm. 
And this doesn't change the way like a, a way a 20th century piece of classical music does, or like a jazz piece would, where you get like sections. It's they just come <laughs> yeah. like it's just one after the other, and you know it's you have to really have a good sense of rhythm to play this. Um, the piece this piece ends satisfyingly on a a resolve. Okay, next, Fred. <laughs> this is mm. a real mouthful. Onovuerosuoke. Fred Onovuerosuoke. Again, apologies if I have mispronounced that. This guy was... This guy. <laughs> this composer. This guy. Yeah, yeah. He's my pal. Fred. <laughs> Fred. <laughs> <laughs> he was born in Ghana to Nigerian parents from the Igbo tribe. So he's got um, some some diverse culture there. This is called Five Kaleidoscopes for a Piano, and we hear all five of them. Um, Fred Onovuerosuoke studied theory and composition at Principia College in Elsa, Illinois. Oh, so I, I guess bet you know I, Principia in, College. In the States, they would call him, hey, Freddie O. Freddie O, probably, <laughs> you know? Because no one would be able to pronounce his name. Yeah, I know, right? He's an American citizen now, by the way. I can't imagine that people call him by his last name there. Just mm. the way they're always, you know, messing up family names and things like that. Okay. The first piece, the first movement is uh, labeled with vigor. And um, <laughs> I don't know if where was, I'm just going to call him Fred, okay? It's just easier. Freddie Yeah, he, he Freddie O. He captures a, he's trying to capture a beehive effect before the bees move camps. And he says it's a sonic metaphor for humanity in its restless pursuits. Uh, the buzzing seems to occur in the bass, which is busily playing a buzzing tremolo below the restless thematic action above. Hmm. Yeah, second movement, adagio molto parlando. Now, parlando means like speaking, and we usually don't get this um, instruction in music, so it's pretty interesting that he would say that. I think he wants something. And it's um, a, he calls it a sort of tone poem. Now, tone poems usually are based on an actual poem, except that they're in sound. And because you know the original poem, you sort of know what's happening in the tone poem. But we don't know what this is. Um, he hasn't told us. At least the booklet notes haven't. So it's just sort of supposed to go as some ordinary poem. Um, it starts in the bass with ominous ringing tones deep in the bass end. Whatever it's about, it's uh, <laughs> not a terribly happy story. It sounds kind of ominous. There are brief flourishes in the right hand uh, before a harmonized melodic pattern is played. Segments of material are quickly interrupted by pauses, and a new approach begins, and it goes on. Third movement, Larghetto Espressivo, is a romance of pure joy of being back in a lover's arms or being back in Africa beholding the landscapes. Uh, so expressing beauty and repose that he feels when he's there. This starts with a back-and-forth melodic pattern, sort of that rocking rhythm that I like so much in African music, ending on a chord, which is then repeated and resolved. There's a lovely contrasting middle section in this, and then we repeat the opening material, so in ternary form. Fourth movement, lentissimo elanguendo, languishing. And he says this one mirrors a dark Nubian folktale of forbidden love and a coquettish but poetic dance of defiance. Mm, this one's kind of mysterious, yeah. Yeah. It starts with some forbidding material in the bass. Uh, the opening is all atmosphere, 
with the right hand playing rippling material and the left hand imitating and playing its ominous opening material. This um, this movement progresses in sections and there isn't much thematic material besides the bass. The right hand just creates atmosphere. Fifth movement in the last one here, Vivace con Brio, opens with a thunderclap in a storm and there is therefore a commotion and a frantic hunt for shelter. This piece is restless throughout and it has a rhythmic pattern with the constantly moving thematic material above it. Track 14. There are a lot of tracks on this album. This is by David Earle, who is South African, and he's also the only uh, white guy on the recording uh, that's featured. Uh, this is called Scenes from a South African Childhood, and it's the second movement of this, called Princess Rainbow. Okay, now Earl, he's he really is the most uh, European-sounding composer on this album, and he... He studied at Trinity College of Music in London. This piece is its pretty much what you'd expect from a, a, you know, a, a European classical piece. It's uh, about a trout called Princess Rainbow that Earl's uh, fly-fishing fanatical father told him as an ongoing bedtime story. The piece has a bit of a romantic feel to it. It really does sound sort of 19th century European with its rippling accompaniment and clear melody in the right hand. Uh, the fish seems to come to a bad end in the final gesture. I guess he gets caught, <laughs> which is played forte in the higher end of the piano. This is a, a sudden, the romance suddenly ends. Into the right, frying next, pan. I, yeah, we get kind of what I thought was uh, the most interesting set of works on this album. Nabil Ben Abdel Jalil, and he's Moroccan. Born in 1972, so he's also a contemporary composer. Oh, I should mention David Earle is also a contemporary, born in 1951. Okay, so Nabil Benab Jalil, uh, three nocturnes, and then he has a piece called An Attente du Printemps, you know, Waiting for Spring. Um, he's okay, so he's going to go for more Arab modes here, so we get a real stylistic change in his music. Now, he's, he's called. Um, he has a series of works called Nocturnes that he's been working on for some time. We're going to hear numbers 4, 5, and 6 here. Nocturne 4 was composed in 2015. It has an uninterrupted melodic line from beginning to end, and the melody is developed mainly in the curd fashion. What that is, I don't know. Okay, but I'm going to guess that it's sort of a Middle Eastern mode. Okay, the work has a lot of appoggiatorias as a motif. Um, you know, this, this, you know, the, you'll start above the note and then kind of come sort of crashing down on the main note that you want to play. It's slow and tranquil, as we expect from a nocturne, with a bit of mystery. And Omordia shows a nice touch here, particularly in quiet passages, and in balance between the separate lines. Uh, this piece ends rather inconclusively, as though interrupted. The Nocturne 5, written in 2016, uh, the composer here is trying to get close to the essence of Chopin without simulating his world. Chopin, of course, being very famous for his nocturnes. Um, Chopin is heard in the harmonic patterns. So, in other words, the, the harmony, it kind of leaves this kind of like halo of overtones over the piano. And I think that's what he means when he says like Chopin. Because Chopin's nocturnes have that sort of sense, like there's a sort of glow to them, this um, overtone glow um, that comes when you have the the, the the pedal down, you're playing Chopin's mm. arpeggiated patterns. I noticed this one has kind of a more denser, I think there's a lot of seconds that are like passing intervals that create a little tension that holds over yeah. 
and so this kind of shifting uh, harmonies in it. Right. I think the, you're talking about those things I call the poggiaturas, right? The seconds, because it'll go from the higher note to the lower really quick. Yeah, and that's it, how I hear it anyway. Hmm. I I wasn't thinking of them as that, but the, I was yeah, just they, well, they're probably the, not that, but the harmonic effect. Yeah. Is, uh, yeah. There's a lot of ornamentation, which he says. That's why the appoggiaturas mm. and great rhythmic elasticity. Um, I wrote down that uh, he likes appoggiaturas. He plays. He uses a lot of them. <laughs> or a chakatur, a kacha. I forget which ones or which. I haven't played the piano in a long time. <laughs> Indeed, the haze of overtones is the only thing that recalls Chopin in this piece. Um, this is produced by the um, arpeggiated bass line. The melody is modal. Sounds Arab in its phrasing. And it's um, Nocturne 6, written in 2020. Here he tries to express the freedom found within nature, but it is also a spiritual quest since God is found in nature. Nature is God's most magnificent temple, according to the composer. Um, all these works are pretty long. They Well, you know, they're, they're seven minutes long. They're longer than the other works, the other movements mm. on these um, this album. Um, this melody is also modal. And there's an interesting bit in the middle where the harmony seems to get stuck with this one appoggiatura type chord followed by rising figures. It all comes crashing down in a single dissonant chord and a pause, after which we hear the opening melody again, and it ends inconclusively, the last chord fading into nothing without a resolve. All right, the last work we have by um, Ben Abdel Jalil. Is called an attente du printemps, and we add a percussion instrument here, the tar, which is an Arab uh, hand drum. It's like this big single-headed drum that's hit with the palm of the hand and the fingers. And this is played by Abdel Kader Sadoun. Um, this this piece was <laughs> how how do you like this? Written in Kiev or Kiev oh. in Ukraine. Wow. I guess um, the composer was there. This is solo. This is um, I don't have a year for this one. Uh, I could look that up, though. Um, there's a solo piano version of this, but here we get the version for piano and tar. Um, this particular work, I don't have the year. Okay. Um, the drum gives this piece some added rhythmic life and really draws the ear from the piano, I thought. I think I would have preferred to hear this in a solo piano version. I did like the sound of the tar a lot, though. Mm. Uh, the two seem to be playing two separate things. Uh, we get some intriguing modal melodies on the piano, and this sounds more like a clash between Europe and North African styles. Uh, the two instruments come together with rhythmic accents at about a minute and 50 seconds. Both instruments get more active after this, the piano rhythmically so as well. And the piece ends rather suddenly as um, excitement is building and it just suddenly stops. I want to get the year of this piece. Let me see. Because he's so... He's, he's still writing nocturnes, it says here. Um, oh, and Atanto Printemps was composed over an extended period from 1993 to 2016. So I guess he kind of kept going back to it. <laughs> I guess so. Wow. Yeah. All right. The last three, we, we kind of end with a little, uh, I guess this would be dessert after that main meal there of um, mm. uh, Ben Abdel Jalil's music. He's probably the densest uh, harmonically on the album, but the that doesn't mean that it's really dense. They're, they're pretty listenable. Uh, Akin Uba, Euba, he's Nigerian, 1935 to 2020, so he just recently died as well. 
Uh, three Yoruba songs without words. So we have the uh, song without words um, title, which recalls Mendelssohn. So melodies, you would think of a, a vocalist singing it, but there are no words. So the, mm. um, it's the main instrument is playing the melody in a song-like way. And Euba, I don't, again, pronunciation, forgive me. Uh, Euba's concept of African pianism refers to the similarities between the piano as a Western instrument and Nigerian traditional instruments using the piano as a medium to express certain features of Nigerian traditional music. This piece arranges for piano three of Nigeria's most popular songs from the Yoruba region of West Africa. Um, the first one is called Ore Meta, which means three years. And this one also features Abdelakader Sadun on percussion. He's playing the tar again. Uh, this is a very pretty melody one can relax into. In fact, all three of these are. Um, mm. They're folk songs, and, they're, and you can see why they're so popular, just so appealing. This um, one really has that rocking motion to it, too. Right, and the one, a, the, the yeah. thing I associate with African rhythm mm. so much, yeah. Uh, it's interesting we hear the tar on this Nigerian mm. piece, because I think of that as an Arab instrument. But anyway... I really enjoyed the reassuring bass line, beautifully shaped and quietly and unobtrusively played by Omordia here. Uh, track 20, Mo Jawe Gbegbe. <laughs> oh boy. It means I plucked the leaf of remembrance. Some piquant chords at the beginning of this. It sounds almost French in its harmonization. Uh, the melody is simple and catchy, and it builds up in volume as the piece goes on. Very repetitive. So he's kind of used some... Um, 20th century harmony to set this um, very African melody. It's a very repetitive song, too. It sounds mm. like something easy to sing, like a folk song. And the last work on the album, Lori Oke Ati Petele, On the Hill, On the Plain. Catchy, satisfying. It's got a quick triplet rocking rhythm again, that African rhythm again, uh, supporting it. Really beautiful. So this um, album, it's, it's easy on the ear, for the most part. It actually gets a little... It gets more and more challenging as it goes on, and then at the end we are released from any complicated harmony. But nothing is nothing as complicated as the Beethoven work we just heard here. It's an appealing album and um, a really interesting uh, a really interesting listen of music that I'm sure most of us have never heard. Um, certainly, I hadn't, and I was I was happy to discover it. Yeah, it's something different. Uh you don't usually yeah. think uh, piano when you think of African music, but obviously uh, these composers had uh, exposure to Western music and uh, classically trained background and then added in their own cultural influences and experiences, it created something kind of uh, unique. And uh, I think the the program makes the most of it. Like you say, it sort of starts you out, gets you into that kind of mode of uh, what we're going to experience as main material. Then it gets kind of complex, a little bit dense, and then lets you down easy with more of a folk song treatment. So, yeah, it's an easy listen. Put it on and uh, absorb yourself into some different cultural melodies and rhythms. And, uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. You know, I could I could see that uh, in the as I move around in this chair, I'm still going to be making a lot of noise because it's got this kind of like fake leather texture, whereas the oh. other one was kind of canvas and it didn't make any noise at all. 
So remember that stuff um, from the eighties, like pleather. Oh yeah. Does that still exist? Yeah, it's still out there. It's a it's a horrible word. I really kind of <laughs> wish I had never heard it. <laughs> In the summer, well, you're going to be all sticky. We're going to hear you like adhe oh, maybe, adhering yeah. to that chair. Yeah, I'm going to be adhering to that chair. You'll hear me peel myself off it. That might maybe it'll be a mistake, but it is comfortable. I have to say, I'm really enjoying sitting in it. Anyway, anyway, um. I sometimes hear like classical pianists get all like, yeah, geez, the the piano repertoire is so huge, and there's so much unknown music, and people say, oh, I'm, I'm so jaded with playing the piano. Well, here's a bunch of new works for you to try yeah, out. So go try those out. You play the piano, you're never gonna, <laughs> you're never gonna run out of repertoire. Yeah, or you, know? you can try this next album. <laughs> oh yeah, you can try this next album too. This would be a real challenge. It's a little challenge, more challenging to the ear. Yeah, we're we're moving from the hot climbs of Africa to the icy cold northscapes yeah. of the of um what would we say Scandinavia, the Baltic states, and uh, the former uh, Soviet Union satellite countries. It's a lot of so icicles in this one here. A lot of icicles this one. Yeah, we're not getting uh, any too much warmth here. Uh, the album's called Northscapes, and, <laughs> and it's played by a Lithuanian pianist. Whose name really is unsayable? I'm gonna go for it here. Weva right. Yokuba Vichute. That's but I don't know how I to say those. Of, yeah, yeah. Yokuba Yoku, J would be like a Y. I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. Yokuba Vichute. I don't know how to say this. Mm. I I did try to look for it, didn't come up, and my uh, Google Translate wouldn't. <laughs> had no Lithuanian. It doesn't have Lithuanian in it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Way, way, way to go, Google Translate. I mean, they have all these other. They have Icelandic. I mean, I don't know. Oh wait, I have a Lithuanian on uh, this other one here. Let me see if I can. You want to type her name in and see what comes up? Let's see what comes up. You have Lithuanian on what? What do you have there? Uh, deep L. Oh, I should pick that up. Let me see. Jokuba Vichuto. Whoa. Joku, it sounded like a Japanese voice. Jokuba Vichuto. Jokuba Vichuto. It sounds almost Italian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who knows how? Who knows how good this? Uh, yeah, I don't know. That sounded like. Japanese to me. I don't know. Oh wait, yeah, maybe that. Uh, let me try it again. Okay, now we've got it Lithuanian to English. Oh. Now it's not giving me any. Uh, yeah, you see, there you go. Yeah, you, you can really the, listen uh, to it as how an English person would pronounce it. Yes, I don't think that's I want right. To do you that. have to go yeah. to the. Yeah, they don't have a Lithuanian voice on there. Um. Anyway, oh, if well. you're listening and you happen to be Lithuanian, you might want to record a few uh, pronunciations for us on Google Translate so that we know how to help us say out. things. Yeah. Okay. This is on the Sono Luminous label, and this is a label I'm completely unfamiliar with. So. Good to hear that. Now, this album came out in 2021. The you know this is going to be my last 2021 album of the year. I'm pretty sure. I have exhausted finally that um, those um, albums. Finally, we can say say farewell to 2021. Okay. Um, the booklet notes I want to say for this album were not very informative and kind of <laughs> drove me up a wall with their pretension. <laughs> Uh, they try to invoke images or feelings rather than explain anything. So I'm going to try to explain things to you and not use the book yeah, notes too much. Just the opposite of what I was looking for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I looked at them. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't need emotions explained to me because I'm listening to the music and I'm going to feel the way it makes me feel. Mm. You know, but what the composer's after, they do explain that. I mean, they but they say, they use all these weird poetic sort of things, like which I'll mention on the way here. Okay, so all the works on this album were written in our current century. So these are all by contemporary composers. Um, and some of them are pretty famous, actually, already. Um all by composers from the Nordic and Baltic countries of Europe, and all share a particular attunement to nature. Um, this is really true of these of the music from these places in general. Like if you think of like famous, um, um, you know, Nordic um, countries, like you know, it's composers from famous Nordic countries like uh, Sibelius. His music is very nature oriented, but yeah. it's that icy, rocky nature that you get. You almost from see Sibelius, a landscape yeah. when you listen to it. You know. Yeah. They, they evoke that a lot. It's part of their uh, whole sort of attunement. Um, and there's a lot of, there are a lot of like uh, reverberations of pagan myths, legends, folk music of the region. Um, they all explore, here's, here we go. They all explore the liminal space dividing yet connecting landscape, soundscape, and mindscape. This is the kind of brilliance kind you of get from these um, pretentious drivel. Yeah, but yeah, what what they mean is like that everything kind of combines into one, like the what's out there and what's inside you. It's it's like it, there's no separation between it. That's that's what I would have said. <laughs> <laughs> okay, they all tried by meditating on nature to reach beyond the physical to the spiritual, so we can understand that. Okay, so you want to be thinking of that. All right, the first one is uh, uh, Lasse Thorsen, actually. That's my approximation of a Norwegian person saying this. I actually did look as many of these up as possible. Um, okay, he's Norwegian, and uh, we hear two pieces by him. the This one and then the very last work on the album. Um, are, they're both in the same set, so he acts as the bookend for everything that comes in between. Uh, this piece is called Invocation of Pristine Light, Opus 52, number one, composed in the year 2014. Uh, Tordeson explains that he's invoking the symbolic reality of the elements in his work um, and not the material of them. Okay, so he's going by it for symbolism. So he doesn't want to evoke light as we see it. He wants to evoke light, what light means to us. Okay, so maybe like things like enlightenment or, you know, higher consciousness or things like that. The work is freely constructed and um, so is the, the other piece in this set that we're going to hear, too. Um, the performer must decide how to combine the sections. So each performance is radically different. So if you, if you were to hear two different performances of this, the material would all come in a different order, depending on how the, uh, the performer decided mm -hmm. to arrange them. Still, Torsen's concern, Torsen's concern with sound, timbre, and color continually suggests the unseen forces behind and beyond nature. Okay, this work is about six minutes, and it starts out pretty dramatically with a bass tremolo played forte. It then goes into something that reminded me of Philip Glass, really, with a lot of repeating patterns. Uh, it's not traditional, but not hard on the ear at all. Um, it comes across as waves, perhaps light as a wave, if I go back to the title. Uh, you can hear the sections change, and they'll be different in each performance, as I mentioned. Um, the next section that she that uh, the pianist plays, uh, I'll call her Yeva Yokovavichute. 
<laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot to say. Okay. Uh, the next section is more Debussyan um, in the harmony. Um, there are little phrases peeking out that remind me of some of the preludes of Debussy. Um, next, we get some arpeggiated material at the top end of the keyboard, which makes its way downward in frequency. Um, repeating and slightly changing chords come next, and I like all the harmonies involved. There's lots of ostinato in this piece, but it's in the rhythm, not necessarily in the harmony. There's the, the chords change as that rhythm stays the same. The inner notes change um, and sometimes form melodic patterns. Um, we get a section with harmonic patterns next that sounds like Debussy's Bali-inspired works, like uh, Pagodes for Piano um, from his Estamp. Uh, gorgeous icy harmonies. They're very bell-like. Um, these uh, sorts of sounds evoke temple bells in Debussy's piece, and here they just sound icy, maybe like dripping kind of water from an icicle. Lots of repetition at varying rhythms. I'm impressed by um, Yokobavichute's tone here. This is an excellent interpretation, I guess. I mean, it sounds good to me. Uh, this piece just ends as a pattern ends, and the last note is allowed to ring out until it fades. And it could have really ended in one of many different ways, too. Well, it's interesting you wrote that. I wrote also, pretty t trickles like dripping water from icicles. Yeah, I think that's our big... I think that that's just our kind of Western idea of like the those Nordic <laughs> landscapes, really. Mm. I don't know. The next piece is by the rather famous now Icelandic composer. Oh God, Anna Torvaldsdottir. 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 I actually listened to an Icelandic person say this, and I still can't say it. Okay, um, Torvaldsdottir. Um, by the way, one little secret to um, uh, Baltic and Nordic names. Um, generally speaking, this is true of Russian names as well. Um, the first syllable gets the accent. and I th So you can I just let the rest kind of fade away. So. Yeah, yeah. I think it's because the person opens their mouth to say the name, and then this cold air rushes in and freezes their lungs. He <laughs> <laughs> just can't open their mouth for the rest. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> something like that. Anyway, I shouldn't make fun. She's, she, she's, she's one of today's um, more well-known composers, and she really made her name with a recent um, movie soundtrack, and I can't remember the movie. And this... In a, in a way, this kind of drives me crazy. I mean, good for her. I mean, you know, she, she got recognition from that, and now people will go listen to her composed music. But movie music, it, it's yours, but it's not presented in a way that you want it to be presented if you are the composer. It's, it's just the way the director wants you to hear it, and it's often cut up, and you're really getting just a sense of the atmosphere of it. You know, so I'm, I, I would recommend if anybody knows her music from this movie I'll look up what it is later okay because I, I can't just leave people hanging there um, it, it would be good to hear her solo composition she's actually a really interesting composer um, sort of like um, she's Icelandic and sort of like uh, Björk and Sigur Rós she just inhabits a completely different world than the rest of us <laughs> as far as sound goes um, this piece is called Scape and it was composed in the year 2011 and it's for prepared 
piano, which uh, we have received from John Cage. And uh, it's nice to hear this still being used, really. I like it. The prepared piano requires screws to be replaced between certain strings. This particular piece also calls for the use of a thimble. I guess just scraping on the strings, especially the lower strings, because they're textured, because they're wound metal. And uh, for the application of an ebo. And this creates sounds inherent, this is in quotes, inherent to the instrument, yet repressed by the mechanisms of the tradition. So it's like your inner self is coming out, you know, <laughs> I guess. Um, that's, from the, that's from the notes. So mm-hmm. in line with the spiritual element of nature theme of the album, the techniques make audible what remained silent. This piece is around eight minutes long. And I like the sounds this piece makes just because of the prepared piano element. It starts in the bass end of the piano and the bluntedness of the prepared strings gives the sound power, surprisingly. The bass notes are held so that harmonics in the higher end ring out, so the pedal is pushed down for the entire piece, I think. It also sounds like there are fingernails, well, that would be the thimble, I guess, scratching on the strings. We get a variety of sounds, chimes, harpsichord-like timbres, It's fascinating, really. Arpeggiated figures in ordinary piano timbre follow this display. While it plays, the bass notes are allowed to ring out, so we get all the richness of the harmonics in the upper end. The arpeggiated material has a droplet effect. Uh, I know we've been hearing a lot about droplets for the last two years, but I mean like water dripping from an icicle, not not from your nose. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, at one point, we get rising and falling scalar figures. A fair amount of the piano is left unprepared, so we hear like normal piano sounds too. Uh, this piece, nevertheless, is highly atmospheric, and I rather liked it. It relies heavily on harmonics for its effect, and that's always a plus for me. Um, I rather like the distortedness on some notes when a pretty clear piano string scratches against the objects in the piano, or maybe that's the ebo doing that. The piece ends with a harmonic making a kind of very soft feedback sound. I'm guessing that's probably the Ebo. I guess she stops the string to end the piece. Yeah, okay, it's next. It's kind of dark and scary to me, this one. Yeah, I liked it though. I thought it was cool. Bent Sorensen, Danish composer, born in 1958. Um, th- this is um, three movements from his 12 nocturnes composed between the year 2000 and 2014. Uh, Sonnetson's music features evocations of fleeting memories and dream worlds. His music attempts to navigate the decay of an imagined past. Uh, an imagined past in this case. So decay, think of ancient Roman buildings as you see them today. Um, all three of these nocturnes take up uh, the character Mignon from Goethe's novel Wilhelm Meister. Uh, the character is a 13-year-old androgynous girl with a mysterious persona that anticipated many of Freud's insights. You know, the romantics were really into this um, androgyny idea. This this whole idea of the um, the sexless human was really kind of becoming a thing in, in the 19th century. They really liked mystery. Mm. Okay. First, uh, we hear the first nocturne called Mignon, Mignon, und die Sonne gibt unter. Mignon and the sun goes down. This is pretty straightforward. It's almost a romantic melody or modernist in harmony, though. Uh, It's French sounding and matter of fact and rather pleasing. Very repetitive. It's about three minutes long. 
Next, we hear the third of the 12 nocturnes, Nachtliche Fluss, uh, which really means night flow. It's translated as night river in the booklet notes. Uh, very brief at just over a minute. It's got a rushing quality, fountain-like at times. Each phrase ends heavily on bass chords, like some blockage in the way. Uh, the piece ends softly and gently. And then the last one we hear is uh, number seven, uh, Mitternacht mit Mignon, Midnight with Mignon. Uh, it's slow and spacious. A poetic, earnest melody is heard in the opening. Um, the piece combines with some contrapuntal lines. Touching and lovely, again, repetitive material makes the piece an easy listen. Great sonority from the pianist. All right, next, the Finnish composer Kaya Sariaho. Um, her prelude from the year 2007. Okay, she was born in 1952, so she's still with us as well. Sariaho's composition style is called spectralism, and that attracted me because I'm kind of interested in this technique. I don't really understand how it works, but I think it works a lot on the harmonics of the notes. Um, it uses the acoustic properties of sound, which are referred to as sound spectra, as a basis for composition. I don't know what that means. <laughs> okay. Got me. Acoustic properties of sound. What Do they mean harmonics? We don't know. It's complicated because it involves computer-based sound analysis and representations of audio signals, and then the pieces composed from that. Mm. And it treats these as analogous to a timbral representation of sound. So I guess it's really up to your imagination how you're going to apply that. Uh, it's a very French idea, as you can imagine. And its originators, Gérard Grissy and Tristan Murel, who's still alive, I think, um, are both French. Um, mm. Now, Sadiaho arrived at the style via serialism. Oh, thank God she's not still doing that. <laughs> uh, that, that really uh, stopped music dead in its tracks for the mid-20th century. And uh, this is far more interesting, I think, uh, uh, spectralism. So this composer's music has been forbidding from the start. Uh, <laughs> Sadio Ho's music is is challenging. Okay, you're gonna have to take it like a man. As um, <laughs> take this woman's music like a man. <laughs> okay. Now the notes say that she has a synesthetic approach. By the way, um, and I wish there were this were clearer. Uh, she seems to have a kind of synesthesia that involves all the senses. Now, as far as I know about synesthesia, it's like when you see color or you hear color as sound. That's what uh, Olivia Messiaen had, and he based a lot of his music on that. Now, she claims to have, like, all, and her music involves all the senses being put into sound. So it and, tastes good? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Mm. Um. She said, this is what she says about her synesthesia, the visual and the musical world are one to me. Different senses, shades of color, or textures and tones of light, even fragrances and sounds blend in my mind. Mm. They form a complete world in itself. I wonder what chocolate would sound like. Here she starts at the extreme ends of the keyboard in this piece, the prelude, and explores layers of sounds and movements. There are a lot of ostinato figures layered with glissandi. Okay, we have this super cool bass note allowed to ring, so it's harmonics register, as in the uh, Torvalds Dotish piece. And indeed, an ostinato figure right away, a slow trill. 
Also, rising figures probably played on harmonics. The pedal pretty much stays down for the entire piece so that we can hear the harmonics, which are important to this piece. The mood of the piece is mysterious, like a dark woods feel. It feels like there's some kind of electricity in the air. Uh, no melodies, just notes ringing out and purling down around occasional trills. I get a lot of water images, so the purling, P-U-R-L, um, image. The piece gets busier as it goes on with lots of angular material, uh, lines that bend rather than curve. Um, you want to be listening to the harmonic halo over the sound the attack is the piano is making. It forms a kind of sonic uh, aurora borealis, sort of. Really, you should listen to this in all music. You know, Chopin's music does this sort of thing too, and it's more melodic. Um, this piece just ends at a seemingly random piece place, so it's really about the timbre, the sound, and about that halo of um, mm. harmonics, that sheen that's o over the piano. I think I was missing the scratch and sniff album notes for this one. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> oh, boy. All right, track seven. Uh, Ramita Sershnitia. Ooh. Lithuanian, born in 1975. Okay. I heard a record of her choral works last year that I rather liked. All right. This is a work for piano called Fan Fantasia or Fantasia, I guess. I, I go for the Italian here. Fantasia, 1997. The piece is made up of two constantly changing themes. The first is melancholy and wistful, giving a sense of inaccessible distances. And the second is fast and restless, like a surge out of a melancholy torpor. So these are pretty easy to tell apart. Inspirations include a range of psychological states and archetypes and nature. And the booklet uh, notes evoke Schumann's two characters, Florestan and Eusebius, who he claims were sort of opposites and opposite parts of his character. And the entanglement of the two themes mirrors the relation of ego and unconscious. And in the coda, there's a return to the original state of bright longing as it returned back into a dream. So what does this sound like? Uh, the melancholy, wistful theme relies on a lot of harmonics like the previous piece. In fact, I think that's going to be true of Nordic music in general. Lots of harmonics. There's a lot of There are a lot of dripping water effects in the quick downward figures and appoggiatories, if I can call them that, because they don't resolve to anything. The restless theme starts at around 2 minutes and 30 seconds and is played staccato with rippling figures. There's a serial music quality to it, like in Schoenberg's music, but it's not composed according to serial principles. It's not a bad piece, really. It just stretches the ear a bit with its unexpected figures. The two themes more or less alternate afterwards, with, for me, the more active theme having the more interesting material, probably because it's so fleeting, like in Webern's music, so you have to kind of catch it as it goes by. I generally like more atmospheric music, though, but the opposite was true here. Um, it has a pretty ending with the first theme. Next, a composer that I know both Russ and I like a lot, Petrus Vasks. We did his oboe concerto on a mm. recording on a previous podcast. He's Latvian, and he is, was born in 1946, probably the elder statesman on this recording. Um, this is his music for a summer evening from 2009 for the piano. This um, piece is said to transform the nature of northern climes into the spiritual realm. Uh, the work describes the quiet end of a summer day. 
Uh, slowness memories arise after sunset. The memories increase the intensity. And we hear a kind of folk song at the end that communicates, and these are Vasque's words, we have survived the time of tyranny and have kept our identity. Everything is asleep at the end. The music is rooted in the earth and infused with memory. This has another bass note opening, triggering those harmonics, and features a slowly descending pattern of chords above, which I guess represents the sunset. Uh, very pretty harmonies in this piece. It's very peaceful and warm, and the piece gets louder and more dramatic at its gestures, sticking to its bass note and chord patterns. It's amazing that Vasques generates so much interest out of these minimal materials. The Debussyan opening repeats after this middle section, and the simple and very pretty folk song theme is heard at the very end. Yeah, I like this one a lot. Yeah, it's it was pretty. I'm gonna have to give this passionate a few more minor myself. theme that develops, almost gets like romantic in style, and then uh, I kind of was surprised at the way that it slows down and gets really faint uh, right before the final yeah. chord there. So yeah, very lovely. Yeah, Peter is Vasque. He's a he's a composer we both really like. I've heard quite a bit of his music over the years. And finally, Torresen again, Lasse Torresen. Uh, this is the second uh, part of his Opus 52. There are four four movements to it. This one's called Invocation of Rising Air. And once again, the pianist um, has to decide which order he's going to play the various sections in, he or she in this case. He's going to play the various sections in, so each uh, performance will sound different. Um, the, the, here the interpreter starts with a quick pattern in the higher register and a bass note that rings out, um, providing harmonic space that are then triggered by the higher gentler, gentle material. These tones in the mid-range are generally arpeggios caressed out of the piano, so a very gentle sound. A quicker section starts, and remember this could occur in different places and a different performance. It features repeated notes and circling, circling note patterns. Uh, quick repeated note patterns come after that. This suddenly stops, and a more glacial speed is adopted as notes are allowed to ring out. A slow rising pattern follows this section, like giant footsteps. I'm thinking a little bit here of uh, Debussy's little steps in De Pas sur la Neige. This is, uh, that's uh, one of his preludes from book one. Uh, so I feel like giant footsteps are walking mm. across the uh, terrain here. This goes up to the top of the piano keyboard and ends with a soundless key being repeatedly pressed. It's, it's like making this kind of woody sort of sound, but there's no tone coming out of it. And that's where the piece ends. So all in all, this is an atmospheric album that can be enjoyed if approached properly. It's really <laughs> not for the end of a hard day of work, but uh, I rather liked this. And I enjoy harmonics and ethereal sounds, though. Um, some people have to be... It's, it's a required taste for some people, but I think it's a very acquirable taste sort of like mm. beer was when you were a kid. <laughs> you know, it was bitter and horrible, and then gradually you started to like it. I think that would happen with music like mm. this. For those who are after the ghost sounds of music, this is a good album to listen to if you like harmonics, as I do. Yeah, it's kind of like looking at a frozen landscape out of a window or, you know, when you're driving along. Oh, no. Yeah, I think the sun does not appear on this album. Frozen Highway. Um, it's good to be in a warm place looking out when you experience that kind oh, yeah, of thing. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. that's how I kind of could enjoy this. Uh, get yourself a hot cup of coffee uh, and then 
look into this kind of uh, frozen icicle kind of sound. Uh, there's some surprises along the way. There's a lot of harsh, brittle icicles uh, in there, but there's some warm kind of uh, oasises of harmony and things inside there that are kind of nice. But um, yeah, it's a, especially coming after the African uh, sounds. It's a, it's <laughs> it was a real contrast. contrast. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, there's not much rhythm going on in any of these pieces. In fact, no. they're pretty frozen. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We could mix these together and see what we get with the African and Nordic kind of things. I don't know. All right. Okay. So what do we have? We're that's that's our classical piano for the week. What do we have in uh, piano jazz as we keep uh, with our piano uh, theme going on here? All right. In the jazz category, we're gonna have. A further buffet of oh my god choose your own <laughs> dish here and i've got on my list which is now 19 pages long i should tell oh, you man. so each each entry is two lines uh in the format that i keep it i have 19 pages of things and so uh it's too much and i'm get getting stressed over that a bit but what that means is i can pick from what i think are the most interesting recordings and uh, on that list, piano recordings, just because there's so much jazz piano released all the time, uh, are the greatest in number. Uh, yeah, they and, sure are. Uh, so I thought I was able to pick out some that I really liked. And interestingly enough, uh, the first one here is a debut recording. And I oh. thought this was a fabulous uh, first recording as a leader here. Uh, by a Hungarian pianist. And we've had, this will be our third Hungarian jazz artist. Uh, what are we doing? How are all these Hungarians it? getting on our show? I don't know. Uh, but it just goes to show you that, uh, you know, jazz is really international now. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, this, I thought, really caught my interest. Uh, that's the Hungarian pianist, Peter Garifus. This is on his uh, a self-release uh, uh, album recording credit is under his own name, and keeping that northern theme from the last yeah. classical one. This is called Reaching North. Yeah. And uh, Garifus is uh, now based in uh, Helsinki, Finland, on the yeah, jazz scene I guess scene he reached there. north then. He did. Yeah. Uh, I guess they've got a happening jazz scene. We've done some other Finnish jazz musicians as well. Uh, on this album, he's got a quartet on drums, we've got Alexi Heinola, bass Nathan Francis, and on sax Sammy Leponiemi. And we've got a nice mixture of some original tunes and some standard tunes. I mean, if it's your debut album, I think uh, you want to come out showing that you can work with the established jazz repertoire and hopefully add your own touch to it. And I think he does that here as well as get some interesting new material. Uh, we start out with an original composition called 20 Minute Madness. <laughs> when I first saw this title, I thought, oh, this is going to be 20 minutes long. But, but it's, it's not. not. It's like, no. <laughs> it's five minutes long. Five minutes I, I couldn't yeah. figure out what that title is, you know, where um, that came from. Yeah, this original that has a jazz standard kind of quality to it. Uh, it's a swinging number. Uh, the sax, Leponemi uh, has the melody. Uh, he's got kind of a breathy tenor kind of tone uh it's kind of his his character of sound it sounds uh, nice on here yeah very uh, when, appealing all the way through yeah. it's, a, it's a really friendly warm kind of inviting sound 
I like uh, they play the, the sax plays the melody and then they when they repeat it, uh, Garifas doubles up behind the sax, so you get kind of this layered uh, melodic effect to it. That's just kind of nice. And Garifas is up for the solo out of the break after the melody. Uh, I liked his melodic sense. He has a really good sense of swing. You know, we think of yeah, he does at least hmm. traditionally. You know, jazz uh, is a music that has swing to it. Right. And uh, you'll get different ideas of, you know, who can swing and can't swing. But when you hear Europeans that have a really good sense of swing, you know that they're immersed in that tradition. Uh, I like how he plays through here. He mixes in some nice triplet figures. Uh, and another thing I liked about his playing, he, he likes to use the higher register a lot to good effect you know some some piano players sit in the middle a lot uh yeah but he, that's where that's where all the tone is you know yeah. kind of warm tone but i liked how he uh gets up uh uses the extreme side of the keyboard a bit and uh also enjoyed the way that uh he uses his left hand when i listen to piano players there's a lot of piano players you know with impressive solo ideas but I always want to listen to what the left hand is doing too. And I, I like the way he punctuates his chords with this sort of short hits that are nice. Uh, then uh, Lepinami has a solo here. Uh, some nice double time figures. And he, he has this kind of uh, smooth articulation, but he also has some kind of biting notes to mix that up uh, and give some variety in his playing. Uh, and the, the drums and bass are really tight uh, in here and they respond well to what the soloists are doing. So I thought it's a nice opening number. I wanted to uh, say about the the swing thing that you were talking about. Like, it seems like the Europeans have really picked up on the swing rhythm and yeah. Americans have more or less gotten away from, or a lot yeah. of Americans have gotten away a, from it. There's still some who do it. But, an yeah. anti-swing kind of thing uh, yeah. in a lot of modern jazz. Uh, they're getting away from that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, also, well, this is, He's a Hungarian in Finland. We've heard some, there's some Nordic jazz that has that sort of uh, kind of coldness uh, to it. Um, but yet we've also heard, you know, last year was Snorri Kirk. Snorri uh, Kirk, yeah, he's, he swings he's hard. Really, yeah. You know, that's all swing and we really liked yeah. that too. So I, I think, yeah. I don't want to typecast any sort of region or national right. character uh, on that. Uh, I want to keep my mind open. Of course, yeah. Um, so, I, I kind of feel like like Europeans sort of they're sort of um, inspired by the records they've heard, mm -hmm. whereas like say in America, like people are just inspired by I guess the whole scene or trying to go against it. It's sort of where you know, all that stuff originally happened, and it, it's a yeah. whole different approach. It's uh, it's it's kind of funny the way that happens. Um, That's my more, take on it anyway. Mm. More swinging uh, through here too and some other variety too. The second tune, uh, mm. an old standard, Taking a Chance on Love. This is from the 1940 musical Cabin in the Sky. Uh, music's by Vernon Duke. It's got kind of a dainty piano intro. Some nice light drum work behind it kind of makes a fanciful mood. Uh, again, sax... Uh, Lipanemi blows the melody in a relaxed way. And uh, there's a nice kind of repeated bass note patterns by Francis underneath here. Gives a pulse uh, with some uh, drum here. Uh, it's kind of, uh, Hainola keeps the toms going with cymbals on two and four uh, throughout the tune. So it gives it kind of this 
unique pattern here. Uh, Garifus Soul is first on this one too. Uh, he's got a lot of nice melodic lines and he uses this kind of repeated anticipated rhythmic pattern that builds up tension in his solos. Uh, I like that a lot. Mm. Uh, in contrast, uh, Lipinemi uses kind of shorter phrases in his solo, and he but he builds upon them as he goes along that connects back to the melody at the end of the solo. Uh, at the end, they add a soft uh, little vamp that gives some extra time uh, for a little bit more sax blowing and some tasty tinkling uh, on the keys from Garifus. So nice uh, touch to this old tune. Uh, then we're going to get another old tune uh, without a song. Um, this was a popular tune uh, composed by Vincent Yeoman's uh, lyrics added later uh, by Billy Rose and Edward uh, Elliskew. It goes back to 1929. Uh, comes from the musical play Great Day. Uh, this one has a really nice flourishing piano intro with runs and pauses, but the, you'll know the melody right away if you know this tune. I remember this when I was young. Uh, I hmm. think the first version of it I heard was uh, Billy Eckstein, uh, this great voice in a dramatic way. Uh, it's a little bit different kind of feel here. Uh, Garifus works out of the, this intro with a little vamp that gets kind of some Latin drumming and then turns into a driving swing uh, when the sax comes in with the melody. Uh, they keep the Latin switch up at the ends of phrases, uh, so it goes from mm. swing to Latin just for a bit. And I thought that's a nice touch, uh, gives some motion and contrast to it. Uh, and then Garifus takes over for uh, sort of the bridge section before Lepinimi uh, finishes off the melody. And he comes out with a extended swinging solo after a little break. Uh, Garifus on this one, it's a really nice articulated repeated notes. And uh, he also gets in a little uh, Thelonious Monk quote from uh, Well, You Needn't, that do 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 da 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 phrase in there. Um, and then uh, he also uh, mixes up the harmony a little bit uh, from the, the regular tune uh, and gets some fast running lines. Uh, again, percussive playing into the upper register, which I thought is a nice technique. It's a great solo here. Uh, I think he really likes this tune a lot. He seems really inspired uh, to work through mm. the changes. Uh, the sax and piano uh, trade eights uh, with the solo drums for a round before they get back to the melody. And again, they end up with a little minor modal kind of vamp at the end for some jamming uh, and honking sax riffs to finish it off. So a nice kind of modern touch to an old tune. Uh, track four is just called A. A. Letter A. Uh, is so it letter A or is it the A chord? What are, or the I don't A know. key? I don't know I don't what know. it means because uh, I don't have any mm. notes to this. Um, but uh, so I guess this is his original tune. That is an issue with streaming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a oh. piano intro. Uh, this is a ballad by the trio. The bass and drums come in and softly. It's a pretty melody. And uh, this is a chance for Gareth for us to show off more of his sense of touch which he does really well throughout the melody and his solo. Uh, and what I like about his touch is that he can keep a kind of legato flow, uh, even with shorter notes. So he gets, you know, that kind of soft, sustained touch, uh, which was nice. Uh, Francis has a dark and melodic bass solo. There's some, like a pregnant pause in this solo too that's nice uh, right before they work back to the melody. And Garifus finishes it off with some nice flourishes and an unexpected chord. Uh, 
Yeah. The end there. Uh, so uh, nice original. Uh, five, Mycoy, M-Y-C-O-Y. Not sure uh, yeah. if it's like a uh, nod to McCoy, McCoy Tyner or something like that. Because uh, no, this one is a little bit more modern uh, in a tune. It's a kind of minor modal hard bop tune with some alternating angular uh, piano lines and syncopated chords. Uh, the second section changes up the beat uh, to uh, kind of a, a hits on one and three. Uh, for contrasting section. The bass and drums uh, drive a really hard swinging groove for uh, Garifuss's solo on this, and he digs in with some kind of cross-rhythmic figures, harmonic exploration. Uh, Ipanemi is set out for the melody on this tune, but he shows up next for a soprano sax solo, and he had his Coltrane pills uh, for this one because uh, he snakes through the harmonies uh, with some modern kind of playing, uh, but always using a strong sense of swing, ending up on some bluesy phrases before joining in for the repeat of the tricky melody. Uh, so a little bit more uh, kind of uh, post-bop chops here. Uh, six, we get a cover of Joe Henderson's uh, Recordame from page one. Uh, and this is a famous tune. I like what they do, though. They give kind of an updated new version of the intro for the tune. Uh, I'm sure everyone who's a jazz fan has heard this before. Uh, so it's got a new riff with a, a bass and left hand thing going on. Uh, that uh, Garifuss adds chords over that as they repeat it. Uh, Eponimi has the familiar melody on sax, but they have fun mixing up the rhythm underneath it as it plays along. Uh, Garifuss solos first. The beat settles into kind of a tight samba with a ride cymbal and bass pulses uh, in it. Garifuss has fun uh, working up the tension with rhythmic phrases over the first part of the progression and then where the sort of chords go through their changes after that, uh, he sort of resolves those with longer lines on that section. So it's kind of a structure, harmonic structure that lends to a real tension building static place and then you can release it. And I thought he does uh, those contrasts well. Uh, Eponimi has a solo and they repeat the intro vamp, uh, and Hainoli gets some drum time over the vamp, uh, but he keeps it very restrained, uh, focusing on kind of tight figures and well-placed hits. Track seven, Nobody Else But Me, another old uh, Jerome Kern tune here, in this case, 1946, uh, lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein from uh, Showboat Broadway. Uh, production 1946. It's got a swinging intro from Garifus here. Uh, the bass and drums join in it, but it's kind of light and tight with nice brushwork from Hinola. Garifus keeps a nice springy rhythm in his solo phrases. I like that sort of tenseness to it. Uh, he builds momentum and weight as he goes along with left-hand punctuation. I like how he likes to uh, work his phrases up into the upper register again here. Francis gets another bass solo on this one. His bass has a nice bounce to it. And then Garifus trades off eights with Hinola for some drum solo spots. They bring the melody back light and tight again, but uh, Garifus gets some tasty triplets and bluesy phrases uh, working up to the ending. Uh, so another nice rendition of an old tune. And uh, we finish things up with another uh, kind of classic tune. Just in time, 
this uh, melody by Julie Stein, uh, and uh, this was, uh, let's see, where is this from? The musical Bells Are Ringing In, 1956. I think... Uh, this there's a film version of this, and Dean Martin uh, had a kind of hit with it as a pop vocalist. Um, Dean Martin, I haven't thought of him in a long time. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, this one gets an intro from the trio, and then uh, Lupinimi is back on this tune uh, on tenor sax for the melody, and they're off to a fast swing. Uh, there's some nice change-up drum work by Hinola along the way. Uh, listen to how he varies up the rhythms. Uh, Lupinimi is up first for a solo. He swings hard with boppy phrases and some higher cries in his lines. Hmm. Gerfas has another hard-driving solo with a lot of great rhythmic figures. And then a sax and piano trade-off uh, with the drums uh, going around for a final turn at the melody. So I thought for a first debut album as a leader, uh, this is a really fine release. There's a lot of talent and taste here. Uh, Garifus is a pianist who can really swing, but he also, you know, has some good postmodern or uh, sort of post-bop and modern chops to it. And uh, if this is where he starts out, I really want to hear what he can do next. Uh, very tasty piano play. Yeah, one thing about this pianist that I, I really thought is he gives you the feeling that he really loves playing. Like he's like really wants to... Oh yeah, it's enthusiastic. ...be, be doing this. Yeah, if you remember... Um, if you, if anyone see, has seen the movie Buena Vista Social Club, like the pianist Ruben Gonzalez, you can kind of get that sense from him. And I'm getting that from listening to the to uh, Giarfas, the same thing. He has a lot of energy, a lot of really good ideas, and a lot of rhythmic impetus that that really impressed me as mm. well. Um, this album was just a real ray of sunshine. I liked it a lot. It's it's really you know sort of um, uplifting, shall we say? But I guess exu- exuberant, exhilarating. I guess that's what made it stand out to me. Like I said, I probably have about 40 piano-based recordings uh, with lots of standards. <laughs> don't, we, by, don't we all? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, on, on my list of things oh, that I... list. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm going to... Okay, so I'm going to listen to these, but I have time to listen to all of them to pick, you know, something for the show. And so just spotting which, through which is- the tracks, the, the energy came through for me uh, from his playing. And that's what I picked up and said, okay, I got to listen to this more. And then the more I listened, the more I was rewarded with the sort of enthusiasm and uh, energy that came through his playing. So we should do like a a 90 hour episode, you know, (laughs) where we just talk about all of those recordings and just upload it like that. Just see what listeners make of it. You know, all the piano releases from this year. So see if, see if anybody, see if anybody (laughs) listens to the entire thing. All right, so uh, yeah, uh, that's it. Check this one out. It's on his own label. I'm sure he'd be happy to get some listeners. Peter Garifus, Reaching North. Yeah, wish this would come out on CD. I hope you guys yeah, can put it out. Maybe it will. It's on, it's on streaming only now. Well, I'll uh, send him a message and uh, see if we can get uh, any more information if it does come out. Mm. All right, we're going to shift gears and locations. We're going to head to Australia via... Beirut and Armenia. Did you get that? Uh, oh, on a road. Can can you get to Australia from? <laughs> no, apparently you can. Well, I guess. Mm. Anyway, this is uh, called the Road, and this is on Ropadope Records hmm. uh, by the Zella Morosian Quintet. Uh, so, who is 
Zillow Margosian. She was uh, raised in Beirut of Armenian heritage, and uh, she has a classical background, uh, studying at the conservatory, but uh, was interested in jazz music, gradually uh, developing a love for jazz. Uh, then she uh, moved to Australia and uh, kind of made a tradition from her classical background to more jazz types of music and uh, also focusing on her composing. And uh, she formed this group, the uh, Zala Margosian Quintet in 2017 and uh, made a splash on the Sydney jazz scene. Uh, so again, when you label music, it sort of can miss uh, the bigger thing that's happening. So uh, the descriptions for this album say like ethno jazz, world jazz, folk mm. jazz. Um, let's just say uh, some interesting uh, music going on here and not on this album cover but if you look at her other album covers i gotta say she's got some incredible hair <laughs> <laughs> i just that noticed that this. as we're a couple of follically challenged guys here uh, we are yeah um, i i, I so. personally like my follicle challenge i take it as a yeah you're all mr clean over there i'm still there halfway halfway there yeah. but uh, uh in addition to I, nice embr keyboards, I embrace it yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So what do we get here is basically uh, original compositions that are jazzy. Uh, this is very easy to listen to music with a lot of uh, modal influences from her Armenian and uh, growing up in Beirut, uh, sort of uh, Middle Eastern sort of uh, takes on scales that are chosen. Uh, but the other key thing in this music is there's a lot of interesting rhythmic things going on. Uh, and that's all wrapped up in uh, music that's very catchy and melodic. Uh, and this is a very easy listen, but with lots of interesting things going on. Yeah. Uh, so rounding out our group on saxophones, uh, we've got Stuart Vandergraaf, who I, I understand has... Uh, a background in playing a lot of different styles of these ethnic musics. Uh, Jacques Emery, double bass, Adam Yilmaz, uh, percussion, and Alexander Inman Hilslop on drums. Uh, all original music here. We start out with Refuge. Um, this has kind of uh, a piano backing into a kind of breezy and moody soprano sax with cymbals. And you'll notice if you start counting, this is a tune in 5-4 time. Um, a heavy beat and bass gets added in. A piano cycles through kind of these minor chord changes uh, before the sax returns. Just when you think you know what's going on, uh, the groove, about a minute and a half, a new livelier groove starts up uh, with uh, more sax melody lines. Uh, we get some more percussion added. Uh, and that changes again into a slower groove uh, on piano, and uh, sax is added to that. Uh, there's a nice rhythmic bass solo in this. And then uh, here, the time seems to shift between uh, five and four beat kind of groupings. Um, there's a snaky sax solo from Vandergraaf, and then uh, Margosian takes a piano solo with lots of rhythmic runs, that turns into another different kind of rubato section, finishes into a new melody 
section again uh, with sex that feels like it's in uh, five again. So right away, you're in a real rhythmic roller coaster, <laughs> lots of things going yeah. on, changing grooves, uh, times, uh, keep you on your toes, even from the first track. I did like the uh, the changing grooves quality of this because she yeah. really relies heavily on um, modal harmony, which is great. Yeah. I mean, I really yep. like hearing that. But it kind of limits what you can do as a, as a soloist, I think, at mm. least in this case, because she uses like fairly simple uh, chord progressions. You know, they're mm. not. You know, they they keep cycling around rather yeah. quickly. Um, yeah. so, so it's a little different than like when Miles Davis <laughs> did yeah. like his modal jazz. You know. Yeah, so the change-ups are in uh, groove and rhythm uh, on this track. Uh, yeah, I also wanted to say the percussion sounds fantastic yeah. on this. I really like that element. It fills in a lot of uh, uh, yeah, space and gives a lot of warmth, too. There's a lot of little textured things going on in the in the percussion on this album, on all the tracks. Uh, there's even some uh, rain sticks coming up later, I think, uh, mm. which is... That would be just cool to have. Like every album, you would just want to have rain stick on one track. You know, that so would be cool. Here, and then, yeah. then there's that soprano sax, man, sounding really reedy and nasal, but uh, it fits in, I guess, with the uh, the Middle Eastern sort of um, sound. I think know? this, though, this uh, uh, Stuart Vandergraaf, this guy has an awesome sax tone. Uh, mm. for, you mean for the soprano or? For everything. For uh, everything. Yeah. Okay. I mean, well, he can, he can get... Uh, a little bit uh, of an edge if he wants, but overall, I thought his soprano sound is uh, really rounded and and nice. It doesn't sound like that nasal kind of uh, tone. Well, it, sound, it sounded kind of that. ethnic to me. Yeah, oh, so yeah. I think he was yeah. going for that sort of, you know, yeah, evoking some other types of instruments with it. Right. Yeah. Track two is called "The Road." Uh, it's got a bass intro, uh, drums, and piano join after. This one's interesting. It's like a twelve-eight beat with an accent on the upbeat of 12, which really throws your sort of uh, sense of rhythmic feel off. Uh, yeah. Listen to it and count it out. I could be wrong, but that's what it feels like to me. Uh, soprano sax on the melody. It's got a piano I, I, interlude. I wrote, I wrote that the rhythm sounds crooked. You know, <laughs> yes. Like there's something missing or, yeah, you know. It's that upbeat was, accent that really yeah. throws you off. Um, yeah. The sax gets some modal embellishments uh, on the melody. It's an interesting transition section that has a lot of modulations uh, through the harmonies. Uh, the sax solos a bit over the repeating chord vamp uh, as it starts to quiet down. And then there's a percussion feature over a choppy chord vamp. Uh, Margosian plays a solo uh, that's uh, percussive as well and driving rhythmically. And then the sax comes back for a run through the melody theme and then there's a nice woody bass solo and they pick up uh part of the melody theme uh, to softly kind of end with some accented piano uh, track three is called devotion this is a slow ballad in four beats <laughs> that's what you could count out easily uh right. margozian plays the melody that's kind of centered around alternating right hand intervals uh, Vandergraaf backs uh, with long, soft alto sax lines here. I think it's alto. It's not soprano. I didn't write, but I know it's It not sounds soprano. a little lower. Yeah, I wrote yeah. alto for this one. Uh, there's a transition section with a different melody with bowed bass and sax working together. That's a really nice uh, touch. Uh, Vandergraaf gets a silky solo before Morgassian has her own solo that features accented intervals and rhythmic minor figures. And the sax returns for a go around uh, with the melody once more. Track four is called Forecast. It's a cool modal bass riff 
that gets doubled in the piano left hand over uh, some snare drum. Uh, Vandergraaff joins uh, the piano and the melody that has very cool uh, modal kind of modul modulations in the piano. There's a contrasting section that runs through some different chord sequences. And then the bass riff gets things reset for a piano solo uh, that navigates the shifting modal changes with lots of rapid fire and percussive lines. Uh, Vandergraaff has a really kind of, I call this a molten solo with lava lines. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. Just the tone he gets, uh, I thought. It's getting hot in here. <laughs> yeah, it, it just oozes through the lines. I really li like his uh, sax technique and approach. Uh, and then they riff a bit for some percussion and uh, hit the melody once more to go out. Yeah, I also like, but I don't want to say I like the mm. bass playing on throughout this album. Yeah. Really, he's uh, he's got this really nice, big, warm sound, and he phrases warmly as well. Yeah. It just feels really inviting. I liked hearing him. Sets the grooves really well. Yeah. Uh, also on the next tune, yeah, because this is called Gratitude, track five. Uh, starts with these rolling piano chords, deep bowed bass uh, that matches nice, and and that kind of resolves into a rubato piano melody. A uh, four beat uh, kicks in, but changes up to three. And then that dissolves again before some rapid piano ornaments uh, from Margosian. The beat returns for a new melody section uh, with more soprano sax. And then the piano takes over for a solo section that features uh, well-placed accents, uh, rhythmic focus. Uh, Vandergraaff has another silky but rhythmic solo that connects straight back to the melody. Uh, and there's a kind of a different little coda section at the end to finish it up. Uh, the next track, The Good That Exists. Uh, this is a rhythmic piano intro in 6-8 uh, time. Uh, the soprano sax plays the melody, has more of a major character, uh, like a major scale tonality than the other tunes. Uh, lots of interesting percussion sounds. I think a rain stick in here. Margosian plays a solo focusing on uh, melodic sequences and accented rhythm figures. And then Vandergraaff has an uplifting melodic solo with lines that spiral and reach upward, uh, interspersing little modal scale figures uh, in along the way. The piano has a new section based around repeating six and then five note figure. Uh, and they play around with it for a while in this section until it becomes like a vamp for the percussion to work over. And it slows down into a rolling rubato kind of uh, chordal wash with the sax playing legato melody until the piano reestablishes the original feel for one more time around the melody. Track seven is called Timeless. This one has a hypnotic bass line uh, and a soprano sax plays uh, the intro. Piano and drums join in while the sax plays the melody. There's a pause before the final uh, melody section, and uh, the chord progression has a familiarity to it with a few surprises uh, uh, in the way that the harmony moves. Uh, Margosian takes a solo first, and then Vandergraaff uh, after that. They both find pretty melodies using some uh, different modal scales. Uh, and then there's a, bass, a bowed bass solo as well on this one. And then the album uh, finishes off with just like a, a little coda piece, uh, Anya, as in, good on ya, uh, the Australian <laughs> phrase, right? Oh, that's right. They're in yeah. Australia. Yeah. I didn't and, uh, this is not a, a full uh, kind of piece with solos. It's only 
a minute and 15 seconds. It's built off from an ostinato bass riff uh, that gets joined by the left hand of the piano. Uh, Margosian then plays some rhythmic melodic ideas and Vendergraaf uh, on unison sax takes it together through some uh, changing sections, but there's no soloing really. Uh, and it just ends at uh, a minute and 15 seconds as a little kind of finish piece to it. Uh, so is it easy but intriguing listen? Lots of engaging rhythmic elements, uh, nice percussion, as you mentioned, uh, interesting time signatures uh, and accents working through those rhythms. Uh, the ethnic modal influences in the solos give a unique character. And I thought that Vandergraaff's sex and his concept, it's kind of a perfect match for Margosian's compositions and concept of the influences she brings uh, into this. So, nice music. Yeah, I especially um, picked up on the percussion and bass. I really enjoyed hearing them uh, play the most. I, I like the tone they got and mm -hmm. the uh, just the, again, the percussion. It was all really warm sounding to me. Right. Um, the, the the piano sound... You know, she's a, she's a good player, um, but I feel like the you know next to the soprano, like the soprano is able to like just stretch out a lot more. Right. She she kind of sticks to her kind of modal things, and she varies that, and that's mm -hmm. good. Um, but I gotta kind of get in and listen to different things on this. Cause I I didn't feel like she could stretch out so much with the uh, modal material that she was using. Um, but but I liked her. I liked I mm. liked the playing. Um, yeah, I have that. Uh, I have the bass, the bass and the percussion just really kind of won me over on this record, really. Yeah, I think you've got to have um, probably uh, kind of not only skillful, but compliant rhythm section to, to take on this material yeah. that changes uh, the grooves a lot within one song. Uh, and so their, right. their input and intensity is the key to pulling off, uh, especially like the opening track that goes through all these different uh turns yeah that was my uh, favorite track i think you know, on the album yeah. effect the first one yeah. yeah caught your attention no pretty easy yeah. easy listen it's, I thought. Easy. it's anyway. a it's pleasing and i like the uh sort of uh, modal approach uh to yeah, i always like modes it, it uh, takes you into some interesting little uh kind of uh spaces of possibility especially i like the sax player's approach he's got uh, mm -hmm. he, know, he doesn't overdo the modes, but he puts them in uh, little spots mm -hmm. that just highlight that. So Yeah, he, he was exceptionally good at like kind of getting the most out of those modes in, the, yeah. in those repeating chords. Yeah. Right. To me, a lot of the tunes sounded more like a, like, like a pop music kind of um, chord progression, you know right. what I mean? Because it, mm -hmm. it just kept circling around so they quickly, mm -hmm. you know. So yeah, that's, it's kind of you know, easy on the ear. Yeah. That's good. No problem. Speak, speaking of easy on the ear. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to finish up, well, with a Japanese pianist here. Yeah. Uh, and one that sadly was in the news recently, which yeah, I guess you're going to talk not about. Not for good huh? reasons. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, this is in us, his septet uh, here, uh, which we'll break down in a moment. But this is uh, Tadataka Unno uh, with his new recording. It just came out this month, March 2nd. Uh, Get My Mojo Back, and this is on Universal Music. Now, Uno, Japanese pianist who went to uh, New York in 2008, uh, he worked for a couple of years with uh, the trumpeter Roy Hargrove, uh, and 
Now, recently, he's played with uh, Jimmy Cobb Trio, Clifton Anderson Quartet, uh, John Pizzarelli Trio. But uh, unfortunately, uh, most recently in September 2020, uh, he was a victim of uh, an attack uh, while exiting a subway station in Harlem. A group of teenagers uh, attacked him. This, uh, I guess, uh, so-called hate crime uh, uh, attacked him as a kind of anti-Asian sentiment due to the uh, coronavirus and uh, its origins in China. uh, And uh, the attackers believed, uh, you know, he was Asian, possibly Chinese, uh, and uh, attacked him, injuring him, breaking his bones. Uh, He required surgery, really bad uh, kind of thing. So it took him a while to recover uh, he may still be recovering from these injuries, but uh, he's back making music now. And uh, so this... Uh, I'm guessing the title, Get My Mojo yeah, Back, is about kind of him coming back, sort of. Coming back as a return uh, from that incident, uh, recorded, as he says, with musicians who supported him. Uh, and it consists of all original songs written while he wasn't able to play during his recovery. uh, He says uh, it's a work full of vitality and joy, and I have to agree. Uh, This is an extremely uplifting record. Uplifting and uh, overcoming collection of songs. So we've got on here Tadataka Una on piano, uh, one tune, Celesta also for a little touch. Uh, We'll get to that. Uh, On bass, Denton Bowler, Jerome Jennings on drums, Eddie Allen on trumpet, uh, what really makes this album for me is the addition of trombone on some tunes too. Uh, Clifton Anderson on the bone, and uh, <laughs> on the bone, <laughs> on the bone. Anthony Ware on alto and tenor saxophones, and uh, we've got some extra percussion here that makes a nice touch too by Victor C U N. Uh, all original tunes. I found them all kind of evocative of other things in a good way uh, that makes them. Uh, familiar right away, uh, so some yeah, instantly enjoyable. Instantly I would say. enjoyable. That's a good yeah. phrase to use. Uh, yeah. Number one, uh, isn't this gate working? <laughs> Question. <laughs> yeah. um, this one has a conga intro and some funky piano. Uh, next, you get a funky bass line and the horns. All the horns here, sax, trumpet, and trombone, come in on the minor bluesy melody. It's got a strong Horace Silver influence. Uh, Uno plays a bluesy solo, and uh, midway through, there's a rhythm break before it shifts to swing, uh, which is kind of cool because it starts out with the, more of a Latin beat. Uh, then it goes back to the Latin beat for a little percussion feature over the bass line before the horns return uh, with the melody to take it out. Uh, interesting, it ends uh, unresolved, making you want a final chord, but you hmm. don't get it. <laughs> and he'll do that again before the album's yeah. over. Uh, the second tune is called uh, Birdbath. Uh, again, we're in uh, Latin mode here. It's got a breezy Latin beat ballad. Uh, the trumpet carries the main melody that's harmonized by sax. The melody has a little rhythmic skip to it at the end of a phrase, which is kind of nice and keeps you on your toes. Uh, you won't get lulled into too much uh, uh, breeziness. Uh, I like that little technique there. Mm. Alan plays an upbeat trumpet solo, creating a happy mood, ending with some half-valve figures, and Ware has a smooth tenor solo. Uh, Then Uno 
has a solo that digs into the rhythm and has some nice percussive chords to it. The horns come back with the melody, and after that they vamp out on a chord progression with some collaborative improvisation from sax, trumpet, and piano. The recorded sound, by the way, is great on this yeah, uh, very this clear. track, and really the album. I really yeah, liked uh, the way it sounds. Three. Uh, this is interesting title that's descriptive of the tune. Uh, time is not what it used to be. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind old, of evocative of our, the time we live in as well. There's that old Woody Herman, uh, what is it? The things ain't what they used to be. Uh, right. Time is not what it used to be. And uh, so have fun counting this uh, one out. It's a trio tune. Uh, it starts out with a rubato piano intro. Uh, the melody gets joined by bass and some swelling symbols, but the tempo and time feel changes up throughout the tune, seeming to match Uno's mood and melodies. So it sometimes relaxed, sometimes intense. Uh, the drums switch between brushes and then sticks, uh, adding fills uh, under Uno's pressing chords uh, to the end. Uh, so the time signature and also tempo seems to be in constant flux. But uh, they have a great sense of interplay and sort of carry this off as of one mind meld. So great musicianship to be able to have that kind of uh, you know undefined sense of time uh, that just shifts as the music goes through. Uh, nice uh, trio piece. Uh, we've got the title track next, uh, Get My Mojo Back. Uh, this one has some bluesy rolling piano chords and a mojo rising beat you know got my mojo yeah. rising you got that beat there i got uh, that uno's mojo is very funky <laughs> yes uh, he's got a funky mojo look out so ladies it starts out with the harmonized sax and trumpet lines over uno's bluesy piano melody uh where it takes a softly funky alto solo uh, Uno's up next for a f very funky piano solo. Uh, he chimes out lots of rhythm, rhythmic figures in the upper register over the groove. Uh, the horns come back for backing over the melody that again keeps you uh, wanting for that last note. Uh, it doesn't really give you that hit. And there's a reason for that because uh, the next track is sort of a uh, addendum. <laughs> it's kind of a continuation, yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah. and it's a shorter version, only about two minutes, but it's called More Mojo. Uh, so what they do here, take that same mojo melody that he worked there, but it gets uh, sort of distilled down over a slower, more funky groove. Uh, the horns blow lines over it, and uh, Anderson is back on trombone. Uh, Uno gets some harmonic reaches underneath the horns blowing there, uh, but he still keeps it very funky. The next track, Circle. It's a happy kind of major bass riff and percussion to get you off on a calypso tune uh, hmm. where Anderson takes the melody on trombone. Uh, his trombone solo after that keeps the happy Caribbean mood uh, staying mostly rhythmic, but with some nice uh, agility in his slide work. Uh, this makes you want some rum in your drink. Uh, <laughs> listen to this tune. Uh, Uno adds rhythmic chords underneath uh, to push uh, the trombone along before he takes his own solo. He has some interesting rhythmic ideas with repeated chords uh, that get a kind of steel drum effect uh, to that. Uh, uh, these sort of chords that repeat, but then kind of they kind of fade a bit on on the the uh, last uh, 
pressing of them. So that was interesting. Uh, the conga and percussion get a little spot over a chord vamp before the trombone is back to take the melody out again. And then there's a vampy section for more percussion. There's some unexpected modulations. Uh, I didn't think it was going to start uh, going around uh, into different keys there. And it ends with a big cadence at the end of this one. So a satisfying mm. ending. Track seven, uh, Mr. Elegant Soul. Uh, this is a trio tune. The loping bass and uh, bluesy piano trills uh, make for an intro on this slow swinging blues melody. Uno milks the melody uh, nicely with great articulation. Uh, there's a wonderful contrasting bridge section that diverts from the bluesy feel. Uh, so it's very bluesy and then uh, it goes up away from the blues uh, before it comes back uh, in that final section. Uno lets it simmer down nicely before he starts his solo. He brings out the contrast with bluesy sections of trills and heavy chords, and then more jazzy runs over the contrasting section. Bowler gets a short and relaxed bass solo before they head back to the melody. Uh, you might think it's over, but the tune's not over hmm. until the bass says so. Mm. So listen to that and you'll see what I mean. Uh, track eight, Until You Hear From Me. This one is a kind of loping minor swing with trumpet and trombone riff melody. No sax, just uh, the brass instruments. Uh, and I like this one. Uh, it's got finger snaps on two and four added to the groove. So that's nice. Uh, the trombone gets a solo section of the melody. Uh, before the trumpet and bone come back together. There's a nice break into a bluesy trumpet solo. The groove of this reminded me a lot of uh, Freddie Hubbard's tune, uh, Down Under. It's got that kind of snap to it. Uh, Anderson gets a trombone solo here too. Uh, he explores a little bit of harmonies uh, here on this one. And Uno solo has a lot of rhythmic and harmonic things uh, happening as well. Uh, so a funky tune with some good solos too. Yeah, th those uh, finger snaps kind of made me think that uh, in a way he's kind of making this like an old like 60s sort of pop album, you know, or maybe like a jazz album from that era because a lot of the tunes fade as well. And I thought that was a little unusual. Yeah. I thought of the, about this as like a pop record because pop songs fade. Mm. Yeah, right. You know, so I, he might be going for that vibe or that kind of could be, you know, yeah. quality to the record. Yeah, it does have uh, a lot of. Classic I do miss finger snaps and hand claps in in. Yeah, there's another songs, one with hand claps. You know? Yeah, yeah, they they don't do that anymore. Not it's anymore. No. In fact, there are very few human things in a song now, <laughs> in, in, aside in music from the today, voice. Yeah. And even yeah, that, yeah, that's like not human. In like, a lot of pop music. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, nine sequel to that old story. This has got an old time gospel feel to it, uh, with Uno on Celesta for the melody. Uh, it's got some harmonized horn lines. Uh, Uno switches to piano as Anderson has some nice uh, slide work on his trombone solo. Uh, Ware gets a tenor solo with some sassy lines on this one. The drums uh, work up from brush work to more of a backbeat. And Uno gets a piano solo uh, with uh, some conga added over for the loping bass lines underneath. Uh, and here Uno rolls out some kind of inspired bluesy ideas at the climax. Then he switches very quickly back to the light celesta sound for return to the melody so kind of uh, uh as japanese would say natsukashi 
Oh yeah, I said old timey yeah, for old, this because it did have that yeah. kind of quality to it. Right. Um, also, it kind of reminded me of like mid mid twentieth century French jazz, like a Stefan Grappelli, the Hot Club, and all mm-hmm. of that. There's right. there's a lightness to it that yeah. sort of brought that that that's the sort of happy feeling that music gives yeah. me, you know, to mind. And we end up uh, with the final track. Uh, Enjoy it while you can. Uh, no horns on this one. Uh, this also has a kind of gospel feel to it, but a different, like a modern gospel rock kind of feel. Uh, yeah, sixties pop song rhythm. Yeah. I said, which so would have been a rock song in the sixties, right? It starts yeah. with this repeated bass figure and uh, kind of a descending uh, chord thing in the piano. It, it's an intro that builds up tension, and then you get to the main theme, which is like a a modern gospel rock. Uh, it starts in a 12-8 beat with have claps on two and four of the, of yeah, the four divisions of it. Yeah, these are hand claps again, that 60s thing. It's got the, you know, so each beat is divided into three, but you've got claps on two and four of this kind of rolling piano melody. Then it has a contrasting swing section. And interestingly... It switches to swing, but that's where the conga comes in here. I think swing is that what conga. that is? Because yeah, yeah, I think so. In the in the left channel, there's like uh, something. There's like a pop that happens, like a, like somebody's too close to the mic. And I was wondering if that would, uh, maybe that's the conga. Yeah, there's it's just in the some, middle eight some, section. Yeah, there's some drum yeah. hits on it. Yeah, um, yeah, it's because I heard this in headphones. It was in the left okay. channel. It sounded really close. I was like, mm. whoa! <laughs> Someone slapped you in the head. Someone slapped um, me in the head there. Yeah, uh, from inside my headphones. What yeah. else is going on in this tune? Bowler gets a bass solo uh, as the drums go down soft for a bit, uh, and he makes a nice switch uh, in his solo uh, from the straight beat to the swing. So he he makes that feel transition nicely on the bass. Uh, Uno gets a solo here too. A lot of nicely articulated upper register figures, uh, contrasted with syncopated and punctuated funky chord work and bluesy figures after they repeat the melody uh they use the intro idea again as an outro uh so it's sort of sandwiches there uh so a uh, nice change up in feels different rhythms uh going on there so i thought overall it's a recording with uh, an upbeat positive vibe uh to me there's a lot of japanese pianists we don't talk about them a lot um because um a lot of them are really technically good, but Uno is one of the Japanese pianists I feel that uh, has maybe one of the best bluesy and kind of gospely feels uh, mm. to his music. He has a really good funky uh, sense uh, yeah. of rhythm and. Uh, also, none of the songs, on, none of the tunes on this album are, are named after food, <laughs> which, which Japanese pianists, which Japanese people, they're just always thinking about food. I really don't understand it. There are loads of food shows on TV, you know. They're <laughs> I don't know. But uh, there's a lot of variety in his compositions. I like the horn lines and the combination of horns. Uh, I like that the trombone was here, but used in different ways. And I like the tune without sex, uh, just trumpet and trombone uh, the arrangements work really well i like the rhythmic variety uh it sounds like he's merely made a spiritual comeback uh after uh this terrible attack uh i don't know how he is physically but his playing uh, doesn't sound impaired 
at all. So uh, I hope we get to hear more inspired music like this. Uh, this is an album. It just has a really nice, uh, positive vibe. Uh, yeah. Overall, it's going to put you in a good mood. The playing is great. It's uplifting. Uh, everyone can enjoy this. If you don't enjoy this, it's like, <laughs> what was that album we had last year? <laughs> There's no hope for you if you don't enjoy which, which, wait, last year or what? Uh, what was the one I said, uh, uh, Joe Biden said, "If you if you oh, don't was, if you don't um, like the, the this album, Joe, you don't Joe like Alterman, jazz. Right? Joe Alterman, right? Yeah, yeah live at Berlin. It's <laughs> it's one of those kind of albums. Like it's kind of impossible not to like this. Uh, it's going to bring the world I together. You know? I think so. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, check it out. I'll tell you those guys, those guys who attacked him are going to hear this record and they're going to be sorry because you know yeah. it's like it's Just really sad. Get my mojo back. Yeah, Tadataka Uno on Universal Music. It's going to put you in a good mood." Yeah, this you could think of this record as the antidote to the uh, the heaviness of the classical music that we had this week, or some of it anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, this, this is just going to bring you right back down and just put you in a good mood. Um, yeah, fr- full of friendly funk and sunshine, I said. Um, yeah. And Uno has an appealing, winning musical personality. The record is all entertaining, not challenging. Um, but if you're an intellectual type, don't let that keep you away because you need this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Just to kind of give you like a respite from the brain cracking <laughs> music that you normally listen to. Yeah. So there All you have right. it a panorama of sounds. Pianorama. From across it's the globe. It's a pianorama globe. of sounds. Yeah, across the globe, across the styles. Globe trotting. Uh, globe trotting piano music. Mm. And that'll about do it for episode 54 of it Adult will. Music podcast with music for the mature mind uh as always uh please do like and subscribe on whatever platform you're on uh do check out the complete playlist on deezer other than the hyperion recording which is not available on streaming uh and that's like. a real shame because you should hear that it's yeah, good check that out if you can they're all good means. this week uh, do like or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Uh, if you'd like to contact us directly, check out our Facebook page or write to us at our Gmail account, Adult Music Podcast, all one word at gmail.com. Another thanks for our wonderful logo and my new big box of business cards. Uh, high quality, great printing. Uh, thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island and that wonderful design by Efren Aquino. Thanks, yeah. Richard. And thanks, Richard Vizzuto, for the for the uh, cards and getting all that moving. I uh, wish I had a brother it's, like that. It's Staten Island. It's Staten Island. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I can only uh, recommend for all your sign or logo needs, fast signs of Staten Island. Yeah. The only place to go. Any hints for next week? Um, I don't want to say. I've got one winter, wintry theme thing that I have to really do because last next week is going to be the last day of winter because people are going to be listening to it in the spring, but that's okay. Yeah. I got to get this done. All right. I got to get it on there. Well, I'm ready to go in all directions. I've got loads of music ready to go, but we'll keep this one a cliffhanger until episode 55 next week. So until then, keep listening and we'll see you again next time. Thank you.